All right, welcome to Foreign Agents number 13. I think I got the number right. We've got Alexander McKay of Red Star Radio here today for what I think will be a fairly wide-ranging conversation where we'll say things that uh, you might not hear in other sectors of the left, but I think uh, make perfect sense to me based on my own understanding of what I always thought the left was supposed to be about. Um, and I really want to get Alex's provocative take on a theme <laughs> that I've been uh, picking up on consistently throughout the last several live streams, which is this concept of the new normal, um, the idea that we're in kind of a new reality, which often feels surreal or, or unreal or virtual. Um, but first of all, Alex, you are the co-host of Red Star Radio with Leila Meshui. Uh, tell us about that podcast because it is a Marxist, a very uh, overtly Marxist podcast. Mm -hmm, yeah. But you're sounding a very different note than most other Marxists these days on the pandemic and on a range of other issues. Mm -hmm. um, how would you, wh why are you taking such a, why, 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 why won't you be in solidarity with the rest of the left? And, well, and how would you describe your politics? Uh, well, I've largely given up descriptions these days, but I'll try. Um, I started doing the show um, as it started as a YouTube show uh, with just me doing it at the very back end of 2019. And it started because um, out of my frustration of falling out of the Labour Party in the sort of the tail end of the Corbyn, uh, I'll call it a sort of a disaster, which is what it turned into. And so I wanted a venue just to sort of uh, sound off about everything that I could, the iceberg I could see right in front of us, which was at that time, far back in the mists of mid to late 2019, it was the iceberg of Brexit right. heading straight towards us. And when the campaign started, at the when Boris Johnson finally got his election uh, towards the end of 2019, I could see the disaster that was coming. It wasn't just me. There was numerous others that were warning that uh, Corbyn's complete abandonment of uh, his prior principles on supporting leaving the European Union, supporting at least honoring the vote that had been taken in 2016, was going to kill the Labour Party in a serious way in the uh, in the upcoming election. So I started just. I essentially ranting and raving into a camera back then. Um, but what changed was the obviously the the, the beginning of the uh, the pandemic kind of changed all that. Um, I initially took a view that um, that the pandemic would somehow be bad for capitalism, and uh, the truth is it is and it isn't. And I initially got the pandemic very uh, the pandemic. I'm going to use inverted commas because of the the way that that classification has been corrupted, I got that initial judgment very wrong. Some more reading later, and I sort of came to a, the more like the conclusions I'm holding these days. But um, show really became a podcast in uh, January of this year uh, when Layla came on board. We'd met through discussions on Twitter. So social media is good for something, no matter what Mark Zuckerberg does try to turn it into. And we've been using um, what we regard as like the Marxist method to try and pinpoint the underlying causes of the certainly the Western government's response to the outbreak of 
COVID-19 or the, the, the coronavirus as it was initially referred to. And that's taken us through most of this year. And what we've been doing is exploring the, the material underpinnings for why the response of the uh, my own country, uh, Canada, which is where Layla lives, uh, and the US obviously being the predominant capitalist power, had been so wildly um, irrational, uh, had been had gone through different phases of craziness and had um, led up to a point where we were seeing like a um, a building on the uh, the authoritarianism that I had protested against uh, whilst it was building up under the so-called war on terror. And why were we in a place now where most of the people who I used to call comrades were now screaming for more lockdowns, more authoritarianism, why they were lining up behind a character like, well, they, was, they weren't saying they were lining up behind Boris Johnson, but whether they were calling on him to take on more and more power and basically do harsher and harsher lockdowns and curtailment of civil liberties. They were screaming that anybody who was opposed to it was some sort of sort of English Ron Paul Republican or something, and all that we were all in the pay of some shadowy right-wing interest. And what struck me was that the the lines being drawn, whilst they weren't completely analogous with Brexit, a similar thing was happening, which is that once a large section of the left was clinging desperately to what I'd call the sort of late capitalist uh, technocratic establishment, and on the other hand, a small minority of us were trying to raise the issue of you can't separate out um, the response to the virus the the lockdown regime anything like that from all the issues that came before with british american canadian french german capitalism like the rot that's been there for a long time and the escalating rule by bureaucratic diktat and the escalating authoritarianism these are all things that have been going on for a long time and every crisis point that western capitalist societies have reached the political class and certainly the people at the top of that have reached for ever, to grab ever more power for themselves to uh, certainly over the private lives of uh, ordinary working class and middle class people. And that's been a trend that's been present since, well, at least the early 1990s. So uh, to come back to your opening point, Max, when I say that the um, this new normal is just a sort of another building block on the old, that's what I mean. And that that we've been going through 30 plus years of um, what little democracy exists under capitalism being largely made irrelevant, uh, of concentration of power into opaque bureaucracies. Um, certainly that in this country's case, that's been going on since the middle 80s at the very least. And the concentration of power inside executive branches, the prime minister's office in this country, the office of the president in yours, the prime minister's office in Canada, etc. And the and the irrelevancy of the um, of the of capitalist democracies parliamentary system, as I was on a panel recently with a sitting MP who admitted that essentially parliament got cancelled in this country and not a single one of them raised a whisper. He said rightly that they had abdicated their responsibilities as they had because they're irrelevant, because no real decisions get made there or have been made there probably for decades. Everything is prepackaged, presented, decided behind closed doors and tossed in. So them being thrown out and sold, 
well, now you've got to do it on Zoom because of coronavirus. Of course, none of them raised a protest because on some level, many of them do know how unserious their job really is. So that's what I mean in terms of this new normal. It's just a it's uh, it's a, it's the old normal, but with more money for Pfizer, basically. Absolutely. Uh, Giorgio Agamben, the Italian philosopher, in his testimony before the Italian Senate against the Green Pass, concluded by saying this agenda actually has more to do with people outside of parliament than people on the inside. Uh, making the point you just made, I noticed as well, it was very one of the first kind of red flags for me at the beginning of the declaration of the pandemic was how the CARES Act which was this giant corporate slush fund for the Fed to pump a ton of money into the financial sector was approved by Congress without even being approved. And I, I remember ranting on Jimmy Dore about it, um, that the only member of Congress who demanded an actual vote was the libertarian who is considered sort of an eccentric figure and everyone demonized him in Washington because he demanded that everyone be there and be present for a vote as the constitution demands, Thomas Massey, who has been one of the most outspoken, one of the few outspoken members of Congress, I think in a principled way against the abuses of power we've seen since then uh, in the name of fighting COVID. Meanwhile, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez <laughs> claimed that she did not vote for the CARES Act, which transferred more wealth more rapidly to the top 0.01% than any other piece of legislation we've seen. I mean, it was like, Trump's tax cut on steroids. Mm. And she, you could actually hear in the voice vote before they all basically ran away and just abandoned Congress. They literally ran away. You could actually hear her vo voice voting yay. So <laughs> it was a perfect illustration of what you're describing. And I think that it does represent uh, a magnification or an acceleration of the old normal because we know in, in, in Washington, foreign policy isn't made by Congress. They just kind of sign off on it. There's very, mm. but on, on these issues of how our money is spent, there traditionally has been more of a debate. Mm. Um, but when an emergency is declared, I mean, it, I guess it reminded me most of 9-11. Mm. You know, Bush came and delivered his speech on fighting the new totalitarianism and both chambers rose. There was no dissent. Mm. Um, so when you say that it's sort of an extension of the bad old normal, I mean, take us through these various emergencies, uh, you can include Brexit as well as January 6th, as well as Russiagate. I mean, yeah. what, what, what's the overall agenda as, as, as well, um, the, the, we need to probably start at the beginning of like the modern period which is I would I would locate like the beginning of this particular period of crisis as being the moment when capitalism actually thought it was most triumphant, which is 1989 to 91. And what we that represented the end of a period which um, an old British historian used to call the the forward march of labor, the march forward of the working class had been decisively halted uh, in, the, in my country. It was in the mid 80s. Uh, with the defeat of the miners' strike, etc., and when you follow that up with the uh, the defection and uh, of the Soviet elite over to capitalism um, at the end of the 1980s, beginning of the 90s, 
And now uh, you and also have the opening up of China. You have a situation where capitalism is apparently dominant. And we had you know, uh, almost over a decade of triumphal intellectual triumphalism from the likes of Francis Fukuyama, from the very from the likes of the, uh, yeah, the bargain basement Fukuyamas like Thomas Friedman. And you, they were saying over and over again, this is it. We've reached the, we've reached the literal end of history. There can be nothing more beyond this. This is our ideal. But of course, as you were as you were saying, the you get then the really the next stage in the development of a clear and obvious crisis, which is not only the attacks on 9/11, but also you start to see the, um, the the prosperity that had been much talked about by the likes of Bill Clinton uh, through his presidency, where he got it through essentially um, increasing the exploitation of the American working class uh, and pretending he was doing them all a favor. That starts to come unraveled actually before 9-11. You start to see economic problems develop in the United States, which um, Bush papers over with it, with these tax cuts and boost in uh, military spending and other things. So you start to see things wobble, but you start what also starts to happen is there has been a, a since the early 90s, there had been a nonstop accumulation of power in various state agencies, um, certainly in this country. And, oh, and power draining relentlessly away from the elected institutions, which I think were, you know, obviously under capitalism, democracy is always somewhat truncated anyway. And the, the ruling class has always been looking for a way to get around any kind of democratic accountability. Well, now they felt from the early 90s onwards secure enough to pursue putting as many areas as possible outside of democratic scrutiny. You talked about foreign policy. That's always been completely off the table when it comes to British governments. And now various other things were off the table as well. They were openly talking about the fact that Blair said all the time uh, that there's no discussion now about economic policy. We're completely, they were unified completely with John Major's previous government. And then when they eventually left in 2010, David Cameron was almost completely unified with Gordon Brown. There was no space between them whatsoever. The it was the same with Clinton and Newt. Same with Clinton and Newt Gingrich around mm. the same era. Which is why they had to pre, uh, have a stage of fallout over sex scandals, basically, I think. Um, but you get to the point where, of course, there's the, the economic decision-making, of course, we all know, anybody who's made a cursory study of the way that capitalist governments operate, that the big decisions are usually, have always been taken as far away as possible from scrutiny, and certainly as far away from the eyes of the working class. But it got so much more worse because the limited influence the working class had had in Britain through the what used to be the Labour Party, certainly for what used to be more powerful trade unions, all of that's gone. So literally policy now is decided by the most dominant capitalist factions, in our case, the, um, the City of London and various financial services. And that is the sort of the background to this, what draining away of power into um, the, the executive branch in this country and in yours as well, where economic decisions would be made quickly and efficiently as they viewed it by the likes of um, by the likes of Alan Greenspan um, and Robert Rubin, I think was um, Clinton's guy, uh, or um, Larry Summers. Case, yeah, Larry Summers, Jeffrey Epstein's good friend. Um, the Gordon Brown and in, or his successor, uh, Alistair Darling, and then George Osborne, 
they would make these decisions behind closed doors in consultation with the nominally independent central bank, which isn't really independent, um, and in discourse discussion with the big uh, capitalist interests. And then they present this to a parliament which has had all of its, um, anybody of any with any brain cells has long since gone. Um, the party discipline is absolute. And they present it, it's voted on, that's it. There's no possibility of any interjection there from uh, what they would regard as the hostile force of the working class because that voice has just been pushed out. So 9-11 was a great opportunity to expand on all of that. You take more uh, um, issues of uh, not just economic policy off the table, not just foreign policy, but law enforcement. Um, so like um, we had successive terrorism acts passed in this country. Actually, they the first of those was passed by Blair on the grounds of um, combating eco-terrorism uh, back in 1999. I remember that being a thing. And suddenly so many areas of law enforcement became classified, became not up for discussion. Um, we had the ridiculous situation, of course, where you uh, could be charged with a terrorism offence, but you couldn't know what the offence was. You couldn't know what the evidence against you was. And if they wanted to, if the police wanted to justify something, they just needed to say terrorism. So, again, more things off the table, more things are in the hands of opaque bureaucracies, which the, certainly uh, the journalistic class has no interest in pursuing. Um, very few independent journalists in this country um, were able to... Uh, were able to actually do that work. Certainly the corporate media weren't interested in doing it. And so when we roll into 2008, now 2008 is a key juncture because what it brought home to them was that their ideal system that they thought they had, even with the wobbles in the early 2000s, clearly wasn't working. Um, certainly it wasn't something that was stable. And since then, the um, they, you've seen the state take on more and more of an active, uh, an openly active role in sort of stabilizing the economy via periodic nationalizations of banks in our case, via the uh, vast application of quantitative easing, which um, go, the Bank of England printed cat or digitally created cash goes straight into the system, um, goes into the, uh, the, the virtual vaults of the major companies and either gets spent on stock buybacks or not spent at all. Um, so you have now a system whereby the parliaments, as I said in, the, in my opening remarks, don't do anything, where everything is run through a tiny number of um, inner, inner cabinet people in, our, in this country, where the influence of, of course, the major capitalist interest is dominant, where the labor movement has no influence over the political system whatsoever, even in the, in the mild way that they managed to get some inroads in there to, up to probably the mid 70s. Now that's all gone. And of course, you have this escalating problem, which is that the, the British capitalist economy still hasn't recovered from 2008. We've not, we haven't, we never didn't address any of the major problems that were underpinning that, which stems from the fact that they're profitability of British capitalism is very, very low. It hovers around about 1%. Um, and that is the reason why capitalists don't invest. There's no, um, there's no real investment made with all this digital currency that's being poured into the coffers of the major companies. And so the only response of this like inner circle, uh, be it around Gordon Brown, David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, whoever comes next, um, 
are faced with a problem where they've got this stagnant economy, but they don't they don't want to take any action against capital because that's um, against everything that they're there to do. The labor movement isn't powerful enough to force any change. And so what they've been doing since 2008 is desperately trying to keep the system together as it is. Now, what that means is that because that they can't put, you know, the, the thing back together pr as it was prior to 2008. So what that means is ever escalating amounts of, you know, fictitious capital pumped into the system and ever escalating authoritarianism of the system to keep it held together. Because that's all this the, the, this this generation of politicians know how to do. Compounding that in our case is Brexit, because the European Union membership allowed the politi political class, even up to cabinet level, to essentially just copy and paste the laws that came from uh, Brussels and then put them into British law and say job done. Everything running on automatic. No real decisions need to be made. So when, of course, they're faced with the need to make decisions now we have left the EU, we have a political class which is completely inadequate to the job. Like they can't even make decisions that would be um, just standard decisions in a capitalist democracy. So they just surrender to um, the permanent bureaucracy and, of course, the influence of external interests, such as big drug companies, big banks, big weapons manufacturers, all those interests that sit there and have a machine ready and in place to go and say, Minister, here's the policy you should pursue. We're talking to Alexander McKay of Red Star Radio. Um, I think one of the seminal events in this continuum of abandoning, abandoning the tenets of liberal democracy or capitalist democracy and surrendering to kind of supranational or um, bureaucratic interests outside of parliament and elected government was Boris Johnson's decision to lock down in mm. March, 2020. Um, and you had a health minister in Matt Hancock, who I think <laughs> <laughs> he's writing some book now about how he's a hero. He's yeah. sort of lionizing himself. His family comes from tech. Am I right? Like he has all these. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of them, a lot of them are like what I would call sort of tech fraudsters. Like they, a lot of them got involved in tech startups because they were told that that was the thing to get into. Um, and so, of course, you show them a they've never met a tech company that they didn't like as a result. So like one of the things that Matt Hancock got in trouble for was like giving contracts to a medical tech company that was uh, that David Cameron, the former prime minister, was working for. So like tech scammers are all over the government in this country. Right. And and so, you know, Hancock and Sage, the scientific advisory group, they bring in Neil Ferguson, who's another scammer from <laughs> uh, Imperial College, which is funded by Bill Gates. And Boris Johnson was planning on doing some kind of moderate restrictions. Um, yeah. And, well, and then, yeah, go ahead. Well, the, the there was a pre-existing plan which had been kicking around uh, Whitehall for over 10 years that had gone through various different revisions. And that was all abandoned within a chaotic two-week period when Johnson himself um, got uh, COVID, apparently. Um, and nobody was really running the government, if you believe what the, the testimony of insiders said, or that the, the only person who had any influence was this ludicrous figure called Dominic Cummings. Right. who was the who was Johnson's special advisor at the time. 
In this two-week period at the, uh, the end of March, beginning of April, it seems that what happened was that Johnson, um, even though he gives off, he likes to give off the old Churchill image, he's a very weak character. Um, he opportunistically put himself at the head of the Brexit campaign, never thinking it would win. When it won, he panicked, and that's why he didn't stand for prime minister, the prime minister's office in 2016, because he realised that uh, the members of his members of the ruling class now hated him. Um, so when he was faced with um, a, a wave of panic that was coming from the officialdom, um, and he, then he was of course taken out of the game for a while by the fact that he had COVID. Um, the officialdom went into meltdown. And if you read the testimony of Cummings, who seems to have been the guy making a lot of the decisions, a completely, of course, unelected advisor, they were all panicking. He and Hancock and others were all running around panicking that they were going to, that the NHS was going to collapse, that they were going to get blamed for it. And so they reached, they were at, they were demanding from Sage a solution. Now, not, it wouldn't, of course, be a real solution. It would be one that looked good on television and one that looked made it look them look as if they were taking bold and decisive action. And Ferguson, being a fraud, and but a very confident fraud, stepped forward with this plan around lockdowns and said, I've got this model that says unless we do this, there'll be X number of you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of deaths by the late summer or something. And, of course... What you what the, the key thing that for me to understanding this was just understanding just how lazy, inept, and incapable people like Boris Johnson really are. And the fact that Dominic Cummings was regarded as the smartest man in the room doesn't tell you that he's smart, it just tells you that he was in a room with Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock, neither of whom are particularly intellectually curious men. Boris Johnson's only background, by the way, is they say he's a journalist. He never was, he was an opinion columnist. He's an opinion columnist for the Daily Telegraph and uh, um, Canada's bad boy, Conrad Black, and uh, various other um, right-wing publications. He's also so a he, poet. He's a, a, a lauded poet on, uh, on, on Ottoman culture. Oh, yes. <laughs> he's, also, he's also a good classics man. The most animated I've ever seen him was when he was doing a documentary on ancient Rome, and maybe he should have stuck to that. But he's not... He, was, he wasn't cut out to do two things, one of which was he wasn't cut out to interrogate the scientists at all because he's incredibly lazy and rather dense. Neither was Matt Hancock, neither were the rest of the cabinet of gnomes that they've got, they were, who were basically didn't think that they would have to be in politics to make these kind of difficult decisions. You also have another factor going on, which I want to raise, and that's the – we were still in that moment in the, the, uh, the run-up to the actual leaving of the EU. And I think that for a certain faction within the British ruling class and supported certainly by certain members of it, a lot of the British middle class, certainly the politically active part of it, creating a, a chaotic or trying to uh, escalate a chaotic situation over COVID was a great way for them to either get vengeance or try and derail the Brexit process. That was certainly a motivation that was going on. Then, of course, we have the fact that our culture in this country takes so much from the United States in terms of the political culture. And because the uh, the United States, the political class there, were driving themselves into a frenzy over the coronavirus, our political class loyally followed on behind. So we get a confluence of circumstances where a scam artist like Neil Ferguson can step forward to, to a 
lazy, useless and cowardly prime minister and say, prime minister, if you do this, um, the criticism will stop. Everybody will think you're on top of the situation. And you all you have to do is tell um, essentially large elements of the middle class that they have to stay home and work from home. Of course, one thing which escaped everybody at the time was the fact that between 15 to 20 million people were still going into work every day. That escaped all the big time journalists in London who were shocked that there were still people on the tube system because, you know, you can't clean an office from home. Uh, they were surprised to discover. So this perfect storm, I think, creates the situation where we go into the first lockdown. And the reason, one of the big reasons why we can't come out of it is because they, Hancock and Johnson, were desperate to cover up the fact that health service capacity in this country has been um, bacon sliced away over the course of not just one decade, but over two. We've got a big illusion in this country that Blair and Brown carried out that they were investing in the health service. They weren't. What they were doing was bigger, being, building bigger privatized hospitals, cutting down on what the actual uh, working class communities had in terms of the old community hospitals, and then saying, well, look at the shiny thing we built that's now partially owned by US private healthcare. And they were terrified of being exposed on that. And I think that's a big part of the motivation as well. We've got a generation of these politicians who are desperate for an easy answer. And therefore, when somebody hands them what appears to be an easy answer, they'll grasp it like um, a drowning man grasping a life boy. Right. And that, I think, is how we got into it. We couldn't get out of it. We kept going back into it all the way through 2020 because I think that um, there was a, a body of opinion within certainly the political and media class that liked the idea of this big dramatic gestures from the state. And that's why a lot of the left fell for it and still fall for it to this day. And also the fact that Johnson, when confronted with a, ne a negative headline in a newspaper he likes to read, gets terrified and does something that looks to, for a dramatic solution. And again, Neil Ferguson is there with a model saying, look, Prime Minister, if you do this, the graph will go down, the numbers will go down. If you don't do this, the numbers will go up. And we had the ridiculous situation at one stage where, like, one of the scientists who was behind it was signed to the the barrington declaration was actually brought in to try and argue with a member of sage who confronted this other side this sage scientist brought in with him a graph he'd reproduced from the daily telegraph so it wasn't even they weren't even doing independent research anymore they were literally regurgitating the stuff that they briefed to the pay, the press in the first place Right. So then we get this unholy feedback loop between like the political and the media class here that's still going on largely. But thankfully, somebody clearly had a word in Boris's ear, probably from somebody from the city of London saying, Boris, I like going to my office. It's where um, all my address book is, where, you know, I like to call up Jeffrey Epstein or whoever's replaced him. <laughs> um, so it's it's gone down slightly now. Um, of course, it was of great appeal to the sort of the petty nationalists in Scotland and Wales who uh, you got two people in Mark Drakeford and Nicola Sturgeon who like taking selfies and pretending to be a leader. So, of course, big dramatic state gestures really, really appealed to them. So, of course, you've seen Nicola this week taking selfies with AOC at COP26, which is a uh, great leadership. But we are, we are in a situation because of... Um, completely uh, com because of a completely undemocratic system, a opaque and bureaucratic decision-making process 
a political class with less intelligence than a goldfish, and a media class so stupid, short-sighted, and completely bourgeois in their outlook that they couldn't even do the basics of actually looking at rather standard things like how many people were actually in hospital from COVID and how many people were actually dying of it. Like basic things like that. And there she is, Nicola herself, Maston and not anonymous. <laughs> and you've got a can of iron brew. That's the authentic Scottish experience. Oh, man. Oh, man. Well, you know, you can look at what it says about Sturgeon or what it says about AOC, but uh, two very, very cheap politicians. Very, very much so. Uh, this is what they they live for. So you know, you make these these massive gestures in the form of announcing a lockdown. Art Jacinda Arden's another figure who's mm -hmm. become you know even more sort of famous and beloved. I call her the global version of the squad, which is well. She know, used to she did training in uh, the Blair government, of course. Right. She's sort of a mentee of Tony Blair. Yeah. And, and so she she sure she certainly knows how to how to suck up media as someone from what we would call a small media market. And one way is to do draconian announce draconian restrictions and have massive press conferences. Really oh, yeah. gets you in the news. And the uh, the other factor I wanted to throw in Max as well was just the um, certainly over the last thirty years has been. Um, and this is something which is very much present in the body politic of Britain, is the um, the completely cliched view of the political class as to what makes the Southeast Asian economies successful. And this is something that Blair was guilty of, that they're all guilty of. They go to places like Blair went to Singapore in 1994, which is a notoriously authoritarian place. And he looked at like the GDP figures and he looked at the skyscrapers and he, and he came back and he said, this is great. This is the model we need to work towards. Because they look at like places like Singapore, places like uh, Malaysia, places like um, China as well, and they get the com complete misunderstanding of what actually made those places into economic success stories. They think it's like the authoritarianism as they see it. They see it, think it's like uh, the uh, bold, dramatic state leadership. But in reality, of course, is that these, that these economies are at different stages of capitalist development to ours, which is a very old capitalist economy. And then they get baffled when they, these ideas that these think tanks have come up with for them don't work. And the cliched view they hold of like the Southeast Asian countries did impact on this, which is they they looked at like lockdowns in uh, China to, or, or what Vietnam was doing. And they thought, well, that's great. Not understanding it, of course. Let's apply that. And because they are people who they worship GDP figures. And with, again, no understanding of what produces it, no understanding of how what these countries are actually like. They think, well, we can do that here. All we need to do is just to announce it. <laughs> right. And this is, again, this is another factor of why we're in this uh, situ sort of situation. Like, you're in a situation where we have an old capitalist economy, which is in an extended period of decay. And, and they keep the, the very short-sighted and stupid politicians that run it keep looking at other countries that are more successful and saying, why can't we do that? You know? Right. Right. I'm, I'm going to throw up on this on screen. This is the uh, new economy forum of Bloomberg new economy, which is essentially a spinoff of the world economic forum. It's a more Michael behind this. <laughs> Sorry. Michael Bloomberg himself has endorsed this. Bloomberg is, this is Bloomberg's forum and it's being held in Singapore. So yeah. it fits perfectly 
within uh, Hank Paulson, Henry Paulson, the man who basically presided over the economic crisis and the the economic collapse of the U.S. financial sector in 2008, mm-hmm. is delivering the opening address. Okay, well, right after Hank Paulson speaks for about 13 minutes, then we have rewriting the code of life, gene editing, and the next technological revolution, <laughs> which is what the World Economic Forum's pushing. Mm-hmm. Rethinking medicine. Uh, how can medicine move toward a new model of care? What is the role of revolutionary technologies like mRNA, which were just unlocked through um, you know, various rushed uh, approvals by captured regulatory agencies like the FDA? Mm-hmm. Pandemic preparedness. Look who's speaking here. Oh, Bill it's Gates. the IT guy. It's the IT. It's the Lord. The Lord is speaking. <laughs> okay, now we, of course, what could we what kind of you know conference of the hovercraft global elite would be complete without a session on censorship <laughs> combating truth decay it's not tooth decay it's truth decay restoring trust <laughs> and we have um you know a vice president of a of a chinese media group with a senator from south australia which has been one of the harshest <laughs> seen one of the harshest lockdowns in the world and ben smith the sort of media critic of the New York Times is chairing it. I don't think he'll be criticizing be, or being much of a critic here. Okay, then, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, genetically modified food is next. Then we got lunchtime, so you can eat some um, locally sourced Singaporean food. And, and then here we go. The Singapore model yeah. is responsible for and, and I've heard good things about housing in Singapore. I don't want to knock it without um being better informed how their housing projects are very well integrated with commercial life and public space um but you can see here the admiration and this is particularly from the bloomberg side of uh global capitalism for the so the the what they called the asian tigers in the 90s yeah. and you know they're they're reimagining the urban environment with um you know asian developers and then they're talking about the climate uh green transition of course which is you know wouldn't be complete without that 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 that's and 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 then that's the end so you got it all that's just the first day by the way i should mention henry kissinger is the chair of this event so if you really want to talk about the bad old normal embodied in someone who will (laughs) probably outlive both of us along with Dick Cheney through the transhumanist revolution, they'll like, <laughs> they'll like graft some, you know, gorilla heart into them and, uh, you know, have them live forever. But anyway, just thought it was a, a kind of disturbing and at the same time comical way of illustrating your well, point. The, the other thing I would point out is like, you mentioned the, 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 the housing thing now, and just a, a point I would raise about that, which is that he's, they, I said that they don't really understand like how like places like Singapore or China or Taiwan actually obtained their success, and they don't. They don't understand it because if they tried to um, re-implement something like the Singapore housing solution here, the property developers would never do it because like they keep trying to like build these grandiose um, uh, Southeast Asian-inspired like skyscraper buildings across Britain, and of course. They're all built terribly. They're all built shoddily, and they all fall apart within about ten years because British developers are notoriously cheap and won't actually put in any investment into building stuff. 
and this is the thing that I don't, I mean, why I say that these people don't understand their own system very well, because like our, again, I'll come back to the age of the British economy, because again, the rate of profit in this country is actually, is actually very low. Like the, they have to essentially bribe all these companies to invest in the first place. They have to chuck money at them to do anything. Like they're talking about like biotech revolutions and stuff like that. But, you know, look at the develop the, the the mass development of the vaccines in this country. Something like 97% of it was underwritten by the state. Like the Boris Johnson went on TV and says, it's a bold triumph for capitalism. And it's like, well, only if you understand capitalism as in um, state monopoly capitalism, which is what is actually going on here, which is that the the entire uh, British economy is underpinned and by gigantic amounts of state intervention, but not in a positive way, just in a parasitic way. Right. Capitalism's in a very parasitic phase. And what all this is, but note though, that, like the, um, the mad ravings of the people in the World Economic Forum, what it all represents to me is a capitalist class in Britain, United States, and the other major countries who are aware on some level that they've got a problem. Um, uh, certainly that they, that's what they keep talking about, the fact they need to do something. But none of them have the first idea as to like actually how to revive their system. Because if they wanted to do that, then it would actually take um, serious, um, serious state compulsion to invest on if you wanted to go that way. Or it would take a gigantic attack on the living standards of the working class and the rights of the working class in the advanced capitalist nations to reduce them down to a level where they it would be profitable to employ people again. And that's my bigger fear, to be honest, which is that rather than the sort of uh, absurd technocratic dreams that they keep coming up with are going to come to pass, what we're actually going to get is a when we do reach the next crisis, which I think is very much on the horizon, what we're going to get is a figure who can come in and carry out that attack on the working class in this country with the full backing of most of the middle class. And that's the danger, to my view, that they will actually come to the conclusion that the only way they can restore profitability to their system is by a massive cut in wages and living standards to the point where they've got enough desperate working class people willing to accept any old bowl of gruel they'll serve up. In order and, to be able to extract surplus value yeah. in, and not implement mass automation. And yeah, because the, the, the ideas of like um, mass automation, uh, artificial intelligence, these are things that they all talk about and that they'll continue to talk about. Um, but fundamentally, capitalism makes its money through the direct exploitation of workers. That's why when we, we go, went through all the last year with all the, the theatrics over the lockdowns, the what I refer, what Marxists refer to as the productive working class, the people who have to go in every day, work on the assembly lines, work on actually deliver, uh, delivering things for Jeff Bezos, boxing things up, etc. All those people had to continue working. Otherwise, the economies really would have imploded. It was the the email class that got sent home, uh, the non-productive right. bits of the working class and the very non-productive middle class. Uh, nobody more non-productive than a, you know, a broadsheet journalist in Britain. Um, the, the, they, the, 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 the untalented middle class is the yeah. definition of the media. Well, yes, exactly. It's like the untalented, unwanted third sons of some, of some media baron um, uh, or a lifestyle guru. The, so 
the the fact that they all got so baffled over that was because they were convinced that the working class didn't exist anymore because they never saw them and suddenly they had to they they came to realize oh god there's all these like people suddenly they're still making things and delivering things where have they all come from but my point is like without without that capitalism ceases to function also without human labor capitalism loses a lot of its dynamism it loses a lot of its uh, profit making ability so there may michael bloomberg may well dream of like an iRobot future where everything is done by robots. It may be something that animates him and various others of them as well. But the very nature and the contradictory nature of the system that they oversee almost ensures that they could never actually get to that. So they keep going around in circles and coming back to the idea that, oh, well, we'll, we'll attack the living standards of the working class again and force our profits up that way. And that's my, my much bigger fear of what the next stage of this will hold. Uh, because the next crisis, I think, is going to be worse than 2008 because they've actually expended all of their ability to maneuver over the last 13 years. Fabio Vigi, who I interviewed several weeks ago and has been writing on this contradiction that you raise, uh, professor of critical theory at University of Sussex, he posits the lockdown as one means of reducing the economic power of the working class in order to answer the contradiction. Because by locking them down, they are unable to do what Larry Summers called overheating the economy with their buying power and causing inflation. Uh, and at the same time, you are not, you don't need to rely on them as much using all of these tech tools. Um, and you can keep interest rates up. But he's basically saying that these various restrictions that we're seeing are aiming to pummel the working class in, in, into submission, into permanent submission, in order to answer these various contradictions that all stem from the crisis of global capitalism. And that is unable to continue expanding we saw, and he, he, he starts his first piece on this issue with a timeline lining up the various pandemic simulations with the apocalyptic pronounce, pronouncements of central bankers in the United States who were predicting in the fall of 2019 a massive economic catastrophe much larger than the scale of the one witnessed in 2008. And he shows how the pandemic helped them paper over the coming catastrophe mm -hmm. by just flooding the financial sector with what was seen to be you know, what, what was at least marketed as you know money to allow people to survive under lockdown and various restrictions and now we're seeing the restrictions taking the form of um, vaccine passports which mm -hmm. will exclude large numbers of people from the economy or from public life. Um, I don't know if I distilled his concept or his theory very well, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I I agree, I agree with some of it and disagree with some of it. I mean, he's. I would say that I agree with the idea that the the economy in late 2019, certainly in the United States, was heading towards a recession. Um, in fact, the uh, the Federal Reserve had restarted quantitative easing in, I believe, October of 2019. Um, what I think that the, um, 
where I differ is that the the lockdown measures that were put in place, both in the United States and Britain, as I said before, they the working class um, for the most part continued working and mostly a lot for again between uh, up to about 20 million of them in this country continued to have to go to work every day. And the the spending was um, somewhat restricted. A lot of it was channeled into, of course, um, institutions like or companies like Amazon buying online, etc. Um, but also, like where I also disagree is the, the even if this was their plan, it's not something that was sustainable. For instance, like there's various attempts at like bringing in vaccine passports in this country. Like there's a very useless attempts at it by the Scottish, Scottish, sorry, government, not really a government, um, <laughs> Welsh Assembly, various other sort of people are sort of thinking about it, but they haven't managed to get it together. And I don't think that they actually will, because one of the things that um, capitalism does require to operate, even if the people running it don't really understand that, does require the working class to have some degree of freedom. It does require the working class to actually have some degree of some degree of flexibility with that. Again, with, if, if you try to just shut down various aspects of life, actually, um, you know, the, the laboring masses actually become less likely to, to produce for you rather than more. So I don't doubt that there are some people in the, um, the central banks and the World Economic Forum, various other places where all these uh, rich sociopaths get to have canapes and whatever. Um, coming up with various different plans as to how they're going to extricate themselves out of this. All kinds of conspiracy, reactionary conspiracies in the ruling class do exist. My point is that they, none of this, even if they wanted to implement some of these wilder outlandish schemes that they come up with, it won't work. They can't dig themselves out. They're trying to dig themselves out of this in a way that doesn't actually escalate to a gigantic class war. And they do trying to. That's why they're trying various different technocratic schemes to fiddle around the edges and find new areas of investment. And I don't think any of it's going to work. They wanted to. They did pass on the cost of the 2008 crisis to the working class, you know, in various different ways in this country. But they they didn't go full on for like an assault on wages, conditions of life, etc. That's again. That's what they will need to do in the end. Because they've been trying to get, they've been trying to get around that. Not because that these are particularly, you know, gentile people or anything. It's that they, they are afraid that if they suddenly pull the rug back on the all the promises that were made over the previous thirty years, they are afraid of the, a fundamental confrontation with the British working class. Certainly, but that's what they will need to have in the end to restore profitability to their system. And that's why I think in the end, all of their technocratic fiddling that they're engaging in right now will all fail. And it will come back to the old methods again, which they've used time and time again. But they're, they're aware on some level that they are in a weaker position now. My hope is that the, the working class in Britain, the United States and the other advanced capitalist nations can actually start some real resistance. And we are seeing an uptick in labor struggles at the moment to prepare for what will come down the line, which will be a much greater assault on the working class. So I yeah. both agree and disagree to an extent with um, the, the manual quoting there, Max. That's Fabio Vigi. And mm. we're, we're, we're talking to Alexander McKay of Red Star Radio 
um, on October 21st in Sochi at the Valdai Club, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin said something that I think tracks with your critique of Western leadership, which is, uh, where are the humanitarian fundamentals of Western political thought? It appears <laughs> there is nothing there, just idle talk. Do you understand? This is what seems to be on the surface. He's essentially saying they have no agenda, they have no plan, and they're just kind of fiddling around. Well, they're flailing. Um, um, I think he's right, which is that they, I mean, at least Putin, no matter what you think of him, has an agenda and has a, a, a plan for the nation that he governs. The, because all the, the ideas of the British and American ruling class over the last 13 years has just been to try and desperately to prop up the system, they've got no, they've got nowhere to go because they, their system lacks any kind of energy they because they are just trying to keep it essentially in stasis hoping that it revives all they've managed to do in this country is reinflate the housing bubble that's their sole achievement the sole achievement of david cameron other than reducing libya to a smoking ruin and uh, making war on syria was to reinflate the housing bubble and reinflate asset prices perhaps that was the only job that was given to him by the ruling class but they're pathetically limited in what they actually want to do and very limited in what they actually can do because again They've spent so long coasting along on a victory that they didn't wasn't really a victory for them. They thought that they won this great victory over the Soviet Union. That wasn't the case. The Soviet elite turned around and defected to capitalism. That's not a win for them. That was a loss for the other side. It was a loss for the international working class. And they've mistaken that for a victory and so are desperate to restore what they thought was their winning formula. But it never was. The system... Brit capitalist system in Britain and the United States has been in deep trouble continually, I would argue, since 1965, since the cost of the Vietnam War overwhelmed Johnson, since Nixon ended the gold standard uh, for good. We've been in an escalating series of crises that they've tried desperately to navigate their way out of, and they're still not beyond them. The system's just, they've just gone limping from one thing to the other to the other, and the the the, the Soviet elite's treachery was the best thing that happened to them, because without that, the and the opening up of China for business, they'd have been in, in this crisis a lot sooner. Absolutely, uh, it's funny how Gorbachev seemed shocked that the West and particularly the United States declared victory in the Cold War. He didn't expect that <laughs> as part of the negotiating the demise of the Soviet Union. Mm. Of course, the triumphalism lasted throughout the 90s and you saw you know the r2p model of military interventionism in yugoslavia seemingly succeeding um and whenever something seems to succeed it just gets replicated and until it fails again and again and again uh, but they constantly are going back hearkening back to the glory days of the 90s uh, and it, it seems like there's no path back there and this period of hegemonic domination by the U.S. is is dashed. Um, you know, Mark Milley, the former central commander of the military, the central commander, acknowledged that in a recent event. Mm -hmm. He said, "We are now." He had essentially said, "We're now living in a multipolar world." Yeah. Um, so this is even being acknowledged at the highest levels in the Pentagon. Yeah, and they can't they can't go back, but they can't go forward either. Um, because so much of like U.S. imperialism is based on the confident projection of hegemonic power. And if they can't do that anymore, then that's going to start hurting the investments. 
And but in many, you mentioned Russiagate earlier. Russiagate is in many ways an admission of weakness and failure. Yeah. Because yeah. they couldn't handle the fact that they're. I mean, they. The, the, I think that the Obama years, they thought they'd got their mojo back. They thought they had their their guy in there who like restored domestic confidence as they saw it. He restored like the. He was basically running the same plan that the neocons did with slightly different um, methods overseas. They thought they'd got everything back together, of course. Then, of course, the disruptive influence Donald Trump ruins the party for them by uh, narrowly winning the election. And rather than actually doing anything at all to interrogate um, the weaknesses, even the weaknesses of their own system, um, they... <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um <laughs> Yeah, I always I always point to this because sorry to interrupt, but you know, as an admission based on your really accurate characterization of Russiagate as an admission of weakness, this was projected on a building in Chelsea, which is a you know gay mecca in New York. But it shows Putin impregnating Trump and Trump taking on the feminine role and being sort of impregnated by Russia, and Putin's the dominator. So. Well, it, it says a lot about the way that they view themselves, the, thought, the, the idea that that was subversive art. It's like a self-own, well, really. Um, it is, and it's also kind of suggesting that being gay is somehow wrong or bad. Yeah, but you know, not that they'd ever admit to that, of course. Um, the, um, the the very woke people who presumably came up with that and projected it. Um, the the idea being the idea of Russiagate was always patently ridiculous. And like the fact that they spent so much time and energy invested in it, um, as we discussed when you were on our program, Max, the idea, the idea I think principally was really uh, for the more serious elements in the state machine in the United States was to make sure that Trump remained off balance and afraid of actually implementing some of the more potentially threatening things that were in, his agenda, were in his agenda, some of the more what would be described as economically uh, protectionist parts of his agenda, some of the more, um, um, should we say, isolationist parts of his agenda. Um, the Russiagate was designed to sort of uh, keep the Trump uh, administration permanently off balance, and they did, and that did work, and hence now, of course, the air is going out of the tires. But I think that also Russiagate needs to be sat alongside uh, things like the COVID response and the COVID regime in the United States, because they're all part of the same thing, which is the part of the ruling class that was desperate to um, restore their regime. I think we've, uh, we're, we're having some Wi-Fi problems they usually resolve, but uh, maybe that UK Wi-Fi is a little slow, a little slow. I see the COVID regime as part of that as well. Like they knew they had an election year coming <laughs> up. They... Sorry, Al Alex, uh, we lost you for a second. If All right, okay. Just, uh, yeah, I was just... Back up 15 seconds or so. I was just mocking okay. the uh, your Wi-Fi connection in the UK. I don't know if yeah. Matt In if theory, you Matt just... Hancock, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give Matt a call. He's going to come around with a bit of super glue. Um, the, the the COVID regime in the United States, I think, was incredibly um, owed a debt to Russiagate in many ways because some of the many of the same methods were deployed, and it was deployed with the same purpose, which is 
destabilizing the Trump presidency in an election year. That was a big motivating factor inside certainly uh, various media figures who were getting especially hysterical about the need for ever greater lockdowns. Why wasn't Trump locking down? Why wasn't he doing this? Why wasn't he doing that? Um, and this creation of a sense of chaos that animated, I think, judging from my position across the across the ocean, all of U.S. political discourse of 2020 was basically an escalating series of hyperventilating crises, be it COVID, be it the um, the Black Lives Matter protests, which morphed into riots, which morphed into, I think, an operation run by the Democratic Party and various element, elements within the security state, all designed to keep um, an atmosphere of chaos going. The old Italian phrase, strategy of tension, was essentially deployed by a faction of the ruling class in the United States to make sure that they could, that Biden or whoever was pulling his strings could hold out this promise to, certainly to the swing voting bases in the United States to say, this is all Trump. You want the chaos to end? You put us back in. You put yep. Biden in, this yep. ends. Yep. Trump carries on, the chaos carries on. And that, I think, is now undeniable, given everything we know about Things like January the 6th, the amount of federal agents that were involved with that or federal or informants from various different federal uh, on law enforcement agencies, given the sheer cynicism of uh, Russiagate, which is now being exposed every single day, given the um, this incredibly cynical propagandistic role of networks like CNN, who were often the most hysterical about the COVID uh, coverage, uh, this was all part of the same thing. It was all part of the same motivation from the same part of the ruling class. Trump was unacceptable for a variety of reasons but to them. He had to go, and anything they could do to push that forward was justified. Let me show some video that I think illustrates this point perfectly about the strategy of tension that took hold in 2020 and which was engineered not only by the sort of federal security services, the FBI, DHS, but also by police on a local level. And I'll talk about you know, things I saw, but right now the country is fixed, is tuned into the, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial mm -hmm. um, around an incident or series of incidents in Kenosha, Wisconsin. I know you've been talking about it, Alexander McKay, mm -hmm. on your podcast, Red Star Radio. So let me just show this video because it, it is very illustrative of the point you just made because you want to, in the late evening hours, start destroying stuff. Over the course of the next two hours, officers forced some of the protesters southeast, across the park, and onto this street, Sheridan Road, in the direction of the openly armed civilians. In the direction of the and other armed men are still stationed a few blocks down the road. So the police pushed them that were damaged towards the vigilantes. I think right. the police set the stage for it. They knew that there were armed groups down there. And they could have not pushed the protesters down Sheridan. The sheriff told us that the police didn't plan for the armed presence down the road. What did you tell your deputies to do if they encountered armed militia people? By the time I think I 
knew what that they were out there doing this. We had our staff was already deployed out there protecting the area. There was no direction to deal with the Kenosha Guard in any way at that point. Yeah, right. We were midstream on this one. We were going forward with the plans we had already had. And we got the militia here. Once protesters and openly armed civilians encounter each other, there's a confrontation. As Balsh and his group argue with the protesters, Pete is live streaming. Between Ryan and his group and the other protesters, I definitely felt uh, quite a bit of tension. There were a <laughs> They're saying it very, openly. Very hot headed members of his group actively agitating protesters. You guys want to fuck around and find out? Hey, 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 hey. Balsh tells protesters to keep moving. The cops are straight up with us that they were going to push y'all to us, have y'all get pissed off at us, and then wrap you guys the fuck up. Right. So that's so, why I'm trying to push everybody on and move back. So he was told by the police that they were going to push the protesters into them. One of the militia members claimed that a police officer told him that the officers were going to push the protesters out of Civic Center Park and that the militia would handle them. I don't believe that for a second. Right, the and it, uh, he's not the field commander anyway, he's just a spokesman. This intersection, mm. near a gas station. Whoa. Yeah, watch out, watch out. They got their guns up. Hey, they're just trying to protect their property. Hey, hey, no one touch anyone. They're racist, and they're out here to look cool. Here is where we first see Joseph Rosenbaum. Rosenbaum the first was a key figure here. Fatally mm. shoots that. Just out of prison. He joins the fight against the armed civilians. Shoot me, nigga. Shoot me, nigga as other protesters tried to stop him. The lone crazy guy, where have we seen that before? Rosenbaum has just been released from the hospital after undergoing mental health treatment. The mental hospital. His reasons for being here are unclear. He doesn't appear to have attended a protest before. No one knows but who he is. his actions on this night mm. will add to an already volatile situation. At this point, the group of protesters has thinned out even more. All of this is done pretty much in the name of Black Lives Matter. And there's definitely black people in the crowd, but there definitely was more white people. The they're they're like, where did these conflict with the protesters freaks come from? The, the protesters yeah. don't even know where they we came from. We had some negative interactions, but that was more of a confusion on their part about what we were about. But many of the protesters feel uncomfortable with the armed presence. They accuse Balsham. Okay, so it's pretty clear, although the, the, I don't even know if the New York Times visual graphic media investigation, which brought staff from Bellingcat on board, even understands what's going on there. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do, I do because I, I wasn't in Kenosha, but I was live streaming from the beginning the George Floyd protests in D.C., the night before the military was brought in and Mark Milley walked the streets and said that we have to... Uh, dominate the battle space. The night before I went out to downtown DC, wh which was being looted, and there were no cops anywhere. There mm. were, there, I mean, I mean, there were very isolated patrols that would occasionally pick people up if they did something more than smashing up a store or they were too out of control. It was eerie. I saw, you know, groups of young men, 10 without masks on, just smashing up stores, uh, Verizon stores, luxury stores were just their, their windows were shattered and there was no there were no police to be found. They uh, smashed up shops in Georgetown, which is a major commercial area in Washington without 
anyone holding them back all the way up Wisconsin Ave, um, which is, you know, a major commercial artery and people in that area, I talked to small business owners and they said, you know, no one is protecting us. Nothing's happening here. And so they just started boarding up their own stores and they, they left and just gave up, which is, and it's also kind of consistent with the attack on main street that we saw with the lockdowns. But then I was also at January 6th, I was live streaming there to the extent that I could live stream mm. filming and there were no police. I just was shocked. Mm. Where are the police? It took them till 4 PM to arrive. And then looking back, um, I saw black lives matter or the, the, the George Floyd protest moved through three phases. The first phase was sort of an authentic outrage, um, bringing a lot of of the, the grassroots organizations to the front lines to confront police. They went to the White House. There were confrontations there. Then I saw the NGOs come in and the Al Sharptons to kind of demobilize and depoliticize people. And anyone who threw a water bottle at police was immediately wrapped up by the self-appointed leadership and told to leave the ranks of the protest. And I so I noticed the protest got whiter and whiter at that point. Hmm. Um, then the the phase of nihilism kicked in after the NGO class and most people went back to their lives. And the nihilistic phase included people like Rosenbaum, I think his mm. name is Joseph Rosenbaum, like, like people who have mental issues. Uh, there were other well-meaning people who wanted to keep it going. And just from sources I had in the ranks, there, there was money flowing into it. People were being encouraged to cause chaos, including in other cities there was a national kind of chaos network um, and, and it existed alongside people who genuinely wanted to keep this struggle that they saw as a struggle for racial justice going. And then it just all ended with Biden's election. Hmm. And it made me think, well, this looks like it was some kind of democratic chaos operation. You had the Trump, the Trump people as well, you know, getting involved to generate a backlash, a pro-law and order backlash. And the security services were just there either arresting people when convenient or letting them, they allowed the Proud Boys, for example, to foray into Washington, D.C. several uh, several times in November uh, and stab people who identified as Antifa. I mean, this was allowed to happen again and again until things were resolved and Trump was out of there. So mm. it all kind of adds up to me. It all seems like a strategy of tension looking back, but at the time it wasn't so clear. I know you've done a, an episode on Kenosha. I don't, I, I didn't listen to it, so I don't exactly know what your views are. Um, there's sort of a sense here that Rittenhouse will be acquitted, that he's been mm. put on trial because he has a, you know, a pretty bad image, a bad personality. Um, and then, you know, Rosenbaum. I mean, your thoughts on him and the whole episode? Well, I mean, you see there um, Rosenbaum in the video you just played is clearly playing the role that my personal opinion is that men like him are thrown out there to do, which is to provoke as much chaos and violent confrontation as possible. That's what clearly what he's there to do. And, and I've seen that at protest after protest, including oh, yeah. Occupy, just people with mental issues being literally escorted into the ranks by the police. Oh, yeah, they, the, the police and um, various other different agencies in this country do it all the time. You throw uh, somebody who's somebody who's either recently been released from prison 
or is on his way to prison unless he cooperates with the authorities and you let him cause as much chaos as possible and he can justify um, anything you like coming out of that. Now, um, we did a show on the Rittenhouse trial and mainly we focused on the fact that the I mean, the whole the whole thing had been has been turned into essentially a rather, I would say, disgusting media circus. Um, the 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 idea of a, such a serious um, offense being uh, tried right out in public and live streamed to everybody is bizarre. Um, certainly that sh shouldn't happen, I don't think. Uh, but also the, the, the saw in the arguments of the prosecutor, the fact that they really they they don't seem to have much of a case to throw at him or they didn't seem to be presenting one what they were doing was saying well he shouldn't have been there well he's a bad guy well this well that well the other but none of that is actually what he's on trial for what he's in trial for is the shooting of those two characters and his argument of self-defense seems to be one that will win out and looking at the video and the events around it it certainly seems like he has a strong case to make for self-defense in that situation. And given what this trial is actually about, which is about whether his shooting of those two people was a justified case of self-defense or not, he will probably, if the evidence is actually followed from what I've seen, be found not guilty. And um, that's probably the right result. I mean, he's not on trial for his personality, as my co-host said in our episode yesterday. He's not on trial for what the media says about him. He's on trial for what happened in that moment. And that's why he's probably going to get cleared. And I would say that the whole thing has been is a circus, which he has been thrown in the middle of as some sort of um, sacrifice, some sort of um, sacrifice to uh, satiate the, uh, the desires of uh, certain elements of the of the liberal middle class in the United States for some kind of vengeance against white supremacy or something. But if they really want to look for the culprits of those riots, they should be looking inside um, certainly the Democratic Party, the security state operations, who, as you say, Max, without that situation, those situations were engineered to provide the result that did happen, which is shootings, destruction, chaos. Um, and with a clear agenda on behalf of the senior people in the Democratic Party to exploit that to with the, as I said before, with the promise of Trump's with their promise was Trump's causing this deadly virus, Trump's causing chaos, Trump's causing a mass outburst of racism. Put all good old Joe in, Strom Thurmond's friend, and he'll sort it all out. And then you can get back to normal again and you cannot pay attention to this anymore. That was the promise, and that's what they said they were going to deliver on, and I think that that was their tactic. Because considering that Biden wasn't capable of campaigning, wasn't clearly isn't capable of doing the job of president, um, the only thing they had was escalating chaos, and that's what they delivered. And, and now, though, they're finding that they can't really unwind some of that. It's still right. basically dogging them, because once you let these things out of the bottle, they're not easy to put back in, as right. you see with like the activities of the British state with like the Northern Irish Ulster um, loyalist mobs. They right. contributed to them running riot in uh, across the occupied six counties for decades, but can't always put them back in the box when they want them back in the box again. As you see also with, I mean, you've covered it extensively, their usage overseas of like Islamic fundamentalists. 
Um, not people you can always unwind when you've let them loose. And this, again, this comes back and this is ironic they're talking about a domestic war on terror, given that they're using the same tactics in domesticated version that they are overseas. Right, right. Well, there, you, you also can't put the narrative back in the bottle. So many people still believe, well, first of all, let me say, I mean, Kyle Rittenhouse and those who are organizing on this Facebook group, the Kenosha Patriots or whatever, were doing something that you only see in a sick society, um, at, which has been normalized. You know, open carry is the facet, in my opinion, of a very sick society. And many of them were trying to relive their military glory years. Most of the, many of them were veterans and they thought that they were going out in a counterinsurgency operation to fight a patriotic war on the home front. Yeah. Uh, so this for something catastrophic, especially with a young kid like Kyle Rittenhouse who didn't appear to have military training or very much uh, psychological wherewithal to avoid what wound up happening at the end, which was just him running a gauntlet of, it was almost like a, you know, virtual reality game where one guy tries to hit him with a skateboard. There's another guy with a pistol and then the, the crazy guys chasing him. Uh, and so naturally he's just you know, unloading. I mean, it was a recipe for disaster. Um, however, he was portrayed, I think in the mind of many liberals as someone who went out to shoot black protesters because mm. they were black and that's what he did. And he was allowed to walk free by the police who were hiding in their armored vehicles mm. um, and may not have even, I don't know if they even knew what had just taken place. Um, and so the, the view of him is being exploded on national TV live through this trial. And you even see people like Anna Kasparian at the Young Turks say she was wrong about him and that he actually uh, may not be guilty. So the narrative collapse means that this operation, to the extent that it was one, is blowing back on the Democrats. Hmm. And you also and you have this also this this very mainstream backlash against woke politics, hmm. Wh whatever that is. I mean, it's almost just encapsulates everything that emanates from the liberal middle class. Uh, and so I think this is badly blown back on the Democrats and it helps explain Biden's low numbers along with inflation, empty shelves, you know, the supply chains blowing up. But Kamala Harris, her approval rating is like 25%. Biden's approval rating has dropped 20 points among black Americans. Mm. So they, as you said, they can't put the genie back in the bottle. And it's not working out well for them, even though they managed to get Trump out by a razor's edge. Yeah, because they've got nothing. Like they have um, what the only promise that they made it seems, was to, you know, Biden kept talking about restoring normalcy. And they kept going on over the last five years during Trump of, oh, we're going to, what about our norms? We're going to, we've got to defend our norms. Well, norms don't um, fill the shelves or keep the, uh, the dollar in people's pockets uh, worth the same or um, put people back to work who have maybe been long-term unemployed or anything like that. And as you were seeing with the gigantic mess in your um, House of Representatives and Senate over the, uh, the so-called Build Back Better bill, um, a, a triumph of nightmarish alliteration, 
um, and the the haggling and bartering over what is some something which is just going to be another gigantic corporate subsidy. And it's no surprise that they lost that Virginia governor's race, that they nearly lost the New Jersey one, that they will probably get annihilated in the uh, congressional midterms coming up over there, what is it, next year? And they will be back to square one. And it really does speak to the fact that this, I don't think the, the Republicans have anything to offer either, because what, what the Republicans will be then be running on is, look at these crazy leftists Look at these crazy Democrats and all the the wild stuff they're doing. Will restore normality. Yeah. So it's again yep. we're back to the question of like neither of these characters, neither of the characters running either of the main bourgeois parties in the United States have anything to say other than hey, isn't the other guy crazy? We'll restore something that you like. Yeah. And that's yep. it. And therefore, like, doesn't matter whether it's another five, four years of Trump, who was largely a legislative failure and contained very easily by the uh, the U.S. deep state, or whether it's a figure like DeSantis or whoever it is, like, they're not going to be able to get over the gigantic contradictions in U.S. capitalism either. So we're back to unless the U.S. working class actually starts making more serious moves in terms of industrial struggle, this stagnant bourgeois nightmare of a dead-end nightmare that the u.s political system is it's just going to remain as it is with these two tweedledum and tweedledumer swapping places every few years after the other side becomes too repulsive for public consumption yep absolutely uh in the same poll that tracked biden the complete collapse of biden's popularity the poll showed a remarkably high number of Americans seeking some independent third party candidate. That's 11%, mm. uh, including 16% of black Americans. So I think there is space there, although there isn't space in our constitutional federal duopoly system to, uh, you know, which is just controlled by two corporate parties, whatever the mm. constitution mandates uh, for a third party candidate. But I think more than ever, this is the this is the period where someone could actually jump in, just on a few issues, um, but actually pushing material, concrete changes for workers, um, especially as there's talk of a general strike. I don't know; it could even be a jackoff nightclub comedian who is Jimmy Dore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, he's definitely uh, good at getting negative publicity from a lot of people. So he's hated by all the right people, I suppose. Exactly. So, you know. I can't say if I'm encouraging him or not, but I, you know, <laughs> I, I would definitely love to be a, you know, a surrogate. But uh, I, I have a comment here from my friend Junaid Ahmad in Pakistan uh, about Noam Chomsky's latest appearance in the public eye. Um, he, Chomsky appears to give interviews to pretty much like anyone who will ask. Um, he's not seen in public much. He's in his 90s. He lives in Arizona now. And yeah, he'll answer pretty much any question. I think he should charge people to like, you know, I'll answer any question for $200. But let me just play this video. And then I wanted to ask you just more broadly about your thoughts on the left in this period, because it's been very dismaying to see the response. Hold on one second. All right. I did something wrong. Um... I'm sure everyone's already seen this who's watching, but I, I, I feel like 
Is this his I need comment to... on the unvaccinated? Yeah. Oh. Um, <laughs> sort of fascist based Noam Chomsky. Here we go. <laughs> Folks having the freedom to, you know, separate if they don't want to abide by these vaccine mandates. What would that look like? Chemo radicals, great Does show. Does that mean that? Yeah, 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 he's a good interview. Have like groceries delivered to them? Does it mean like separated communities of folks who are unvaccinated, or just, you know, how do you think this would practically play out? Same way as with people who say that I don't want to, I don't want to accept traffic rules. Those are people who can attack on my liberty to make me stop at a red light. It's government overreach. I don't want the state to have that power over my private life. Well, such people have to be, they should have the decency to remove themselves from the community. If they refuse to do that, then measures have to be taken to safeguard the community from them. Then comes the practical question that you ask, uh, how can we get food to them? Well, that's actually their problem. Uh, of course, if they really- <laughs> That's their that problem, then let them yes, just die. Have to move in yeah. with some measure to uh, secure their survival, uh, just as you do with people in jail, for example. They're but in jail, jail them. That's really not the issue. <sighs> Um, and, 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 and right now, actually, as we speak, Austria, the Austrian chancellor, the Austrian government is taking the Chomsky option. <laughs> Austria plans to approve lockdown for the unvaccinated on Sunday. Mm. So actually thousands and thousands of Austrians are marching against this new measure to exclusively lock down and essentially imprison in their own homes people for not taking a experimental gene therapy mm. big pharma product that has proven pretty leaky and has failed on most of its promises. Uh, they have a 65% vaccine uptake, but they're locking people in their homes. And yeah, this is the Chomsky option. This is exactly what no, he called be, for. He'd be delighted. Um, yeah. I mean, he should go to Austria and you know, speak in Vienna to the to the to the unvaccinated on to why the Reich's chancellor, to the, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I mean, it, it, this isn't about Chomsky. The this isn't. I, I don't want to just take the question towards Chomsky. Hmm. Um, he's taken a lot of horrible positions actually in recent years, including signing on to a petition calling for the U.S. to maintain troops in Syria. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, you're standing apart from almost the entire left and most people who describe themselves as Marxists in the UK mm -hmm. on this issue. And I'm doing something similar here. Um, I, I do think that, you know, there are some openings. Professor Richard Wolf, for example, has come out against vaccine mandates and denounced them as correctly as an attack on workers that just empowers bosses mm -hmm. to abuse workers however they want and to uh, compromise or completely obliterate their bodily autonomy. So why is the left this way? Why has it behaved in such lockstep? It, why has it supported every restriction in such lockstep with 
pseudo-socialist dressing, like everyone must be mandated to take a mRNA vaccine, but the vaccine should be nationalized. It should be produced by a nationalized manufacturer in the United States, as if that's ever going to happen. Mm. I mean, wh what explains their sensibility and their mentality in your view? Um, do you have a couple of days, Max? Because that might take a while. <laughs> um, I'll, try and, I'll try and summarize what, from the discussions I've had with various former comrades of mine, um, I can summarize it as follows. There's a number of there's a number of factors. The first of which is um, the a complete misunderstanding of the nature of modern capitalism, um, to the point where I would say that they the left in this country, and I think it's true certainly of the left in the United States as well. Um, they misunderstand what is popularly referred to as the neoliberal period. They think of it as the withdrawal of the state from the society and the economy. That's not the case. Like the, in, in fact, what, all, what we've really seen over the last 40 years is a rebalancing of state priorities, spending priorities, state involvement in the economy. State involvement in the economy never stopped. In fact, it's much it's bigger than ever now. But because the left bought into this idea and propagated this idea that neoliberalism meant a smaller state. They literally took Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher at their words. They now think that any expression of state power means, therefore, it has to be on some level, and if not anti-capitalist, at least it's somehow decommodifying or it's somehow seeing the market combated, when that is just not the case. You can't separate the state and the market under capitalism. And so that's the problem. They, it's a theoretical mistake in misunderstanding what modern capitalism is. The second problem is that both the US and the British left were coming off a major hangover in early 2020. The failure of Corbyn, the collapse of that project, and in the, in the say, at the same time, the collapse of the Sanders project in the United States, the rolling up of both of those things into the establishment, um, created like a vacuum and a whole lot of disillusioned mother middle class socialists floating around who were desperate to see something happen. And they, again, because they had a faulty understanding of what the state is for and what how the state operates under capitalism, they saw the uh, what they thought as an opportunity for pressing the state for concessions um, under the weight of the apparent pandemic. And so they went all in with this idea that if they could they could boost the um, the they could push the state into doing more and more coercive measures if they could somehow get more industries shut down, get more workers sent home, that somehow they were going to be able to uh, boost support for some sort of revived New Deal in the United States or some sort of revived Keynesian welfareism in Britain. Totally ridiculous, of course. Um, the capitalist class is never going to give them that. It only gave them that in the first place, thanks to a unique combination of circumstances which haven't existed now for quite a long time. So you enter this um, vacuum with a bad understanding of the state, a bad understanding of what the previous welfare capitalist period was actually like, and no understanding of what uh, the impact of these lockdowns were going to have <clears throat> on the lives of the working class, they piled into this and created for themselves a fantasy image of the anti-vaxxer, the anti-lockdowner, this supposed all-powerful, I mean, one group, one particularly crazy group in South America called them the, the Bananists, 
who are out there advocating for against lockdowns and against vaccinations um, out there in the world and were corrupting the, the were corrupting the working class. They had to create a fantasy vision. We're for seeing themselves. the uh, phrase anti-vaccine lobby now being thrown around <laughs> as if it's like this. It's bigger well, than the big pharma lobby. Yeah, I mean, we've, we haven't got anything like the budget. The. Um, so they, they had to create a phony image in their mind of what those of us who were raising questions about this, who we were, the idea being that we were paid off by like, I don't know, what Steve Bannon going around delivering brown envelopes full of used banknotes to people or something, I don't know. But because their position didn't make any sense, they had to create a fantasy to sustain it. And they're still in that fantasy now. Though we are seeing some breaks away from that. You're seeing that some, some of the people who are uh, on the the fringes of the, the Corbyn movement who weren't as all in with the Labour Party or the organized left, starting to break away some of the more libertarian aspects of um, the, 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 the broader, I'd say more working class uh, elements in Britain are breaking away. I've been to some of these um, anti-COVID uh, anti regime demonstrations. These are not far right demonstrations by any means. In fact, the there are some far right people there, but they don't get much traction because these are very much working class and lower middle class people attending. They're very much a broad spectrum of British society. And the one in Manchester I attended was uh, fully reflective of all the different communities in the city. That's not like a British fascist demonstration by any means. It's a demonstration of a lot of ordinary people. And I tell you, the amount of working class people there, the trade union movement when I was working for it would have killed for that kind of turnout. So this is the reality is that you have a lot of people whose bad whose lives have been badly affected by the lockdowns whose uh, work has been curtailed whose uh, small businesses have been affected and those are the people taking up uh, take taking to the streets against the covid regime and the left are still having to still maintain this fantasy with ever greater hysteria because the narrative's just running away from them now and the fact that the even um, figures like in the, the leftist intellectual sphere like Richard Wolff and so maybe some others too are moving away from this and have discovered the fact that, well, if you give the government and the employers direct control over what goes into the bodies of the worker, that might be bad for the worker. Hell of a revelation for so many Marxists out there. But that is like the, the old slogan from like 100 years ago was, eight hours in work, eight hours rest, and eight hours for ourselves. And if under the lockdowns, they took away the eight hours for yourself. You could no longer spend that how you wanted. That's a direct attack on the working class. People, uh, the, the forefathers of uh, the working class fought very long and hard to get that eight hours leisure time. And to throw it away and say it doesn't matter says to me that a lot of these people on the left are completely disconnected for the, from the working class. They have no understanding of the value that the working class places on leisure time. And so this toxic combination has led them down this route where, yet again, they are supporting merely one wing of the ruling class against another because they have conjured a fantasy for themselves about what they're doing. A lot of the same people made the same mistake with Brexit. They thought that Brexit was being overseen by these, like, Mon monocled sort of uh, P.G. Woodhouse characters uh, planning to restore the British Empire, whereas in actual fact, the most powerful capitalist interests were against Brexit because of the, uh, the free movement of capital the EU gave them. So again and again, the left has chosen aesthetics over actual class politics, and they have done so again with the lockdowns.
Yeah, well, now you get eight hours to treat your myocarditis. Uh, yeah. That's what you're entitled to. <laughs> eight, uh, eight hours acupuncture around the heart. <laughs> I, I I remember actually the one of the first events that made me start kind of questioning the logic of lockdowns was a close friend who's a public school teacher in Jersey City had a colleague who just was an older woman who was struggle had struggled with addiction but had been sober for many years and she just was sent home lived by herself didn't have community the kids that she loved to teach every day uh, and she just went home took some pills and killed herself hmm. and I thought you know a lot of people must be doing that right now um, yeah well suicide and, figures went through the roof last year and uh, opioid deaths. Uh, thirty percent nationally in twenty twenty, uh, a spike thirty percent of thirty percent, forty percent in West Virginia and ten other states that had been really hit by hard hit by outsourcing and also had been targeted by Purdue Pharma and their industry reps throughout the nineteen nineties. So they already had that, and now we're having um, a heroin shortage. Uh, I don't know if that's because the U.S. left Afghanistan, but there is a heroin mm. shortage and now people are starting to go back to more hardcore opioids who had gone through mm. these various cycles of addiction. But it's just amazing to me, you know, seeing socialist groups protest to cancel the rents and, you know, protest against eviction. And it's as though they, they always say because of the pandemic, this is happening as if the pandemic requires immediately and automatically a hard lockdown hmm. that destroys everyone's livelihood and sends people into despair. I saw a, um, one of the British um, scientific advisory group advisors, I, I, I think he was on Sage, said that being under lockdown is like smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of the psychological and health toll that it does to you. So they never acknowledged that the lockdown was a policy choice, that it was unprecedented, no. that it was based on bogus modeling. Hmm. And if you even introduce this concept to them, they start calling you an anti-vaxxer. It's hmm. really confounding to the point where I question what it means to even be on the left in the United States. And it seems that even the socialist parties that stood apart from the Democratic Party, that even ran candidates as independents, have had this convergence with the mm. Democrats, especially since January 6th, against this uh, atmosphere where they see everything in terms of kind of a culture war. They see January 6th, they, they, you know, many of them genuinely saw it as this fascist insurrection where fascists nearly took over, then put all, we're going to put the communists in, uh, in camps or murder them all and not the clown show that it was. And many of them see the, anyone protesting, at least in the United States, against vaccine mandates as a fascist as well. And so they need to, hmm. pro, they need to seek the protection of the bourgeois state, the capitalist state, to protect them from the fascists. Um, Adolf Reed recently gave an interview with yeah. The Real News where he, he said as much. I don't know if this, if you see this as a factor, yeah. but it seems like Trump derangement syndrome has um, infected far more than the so-called shit libs. Yeah, they completely 
gas and you can substitute for that Brexit derangement syndrome in this country. Like they they thought that it was the, um, you know, the Oswald Mosley, the old fascist leader from the 30s, had risen from the grave and was uh, preparing the uh, to reinstitute like the Fourth Reich in this country. Um, the 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 panic and the madness over it. Uh, I will go back to my point earlier that the the left in this country and I think even more so in the United States is so divorced from the life of the working class that they couldn't they can't imagine like the, a that lockdowns might be bad, b that keeping children out of school for a year might have negative consequences, or that the um, or that the in, locking people up in their homes is going to compound all the worst like um, self-destructive behavior that people um, contain within themselves and able, maybe able to keep a lid on it in regular life. Um, they're complete. In a... <laughs> yeah, but you can play the Jacobin board game, class war. It, it's just like Monopoly, only you complete the only you never get rich. Um, well, no, Baskar Sankara, who's selling that, will probably get rich off it. Um, but again, like, because they don't see class war as a, um, they don't see it as an active force. They see it as a set of aesthetics. And they don't see the fact that class struggle, i.e. The, the pressure from the ruling class on the working class being something which is constant. Like the, the warfare, the bourgeoisie on the American worker or the British worker or whoever, is a constant thing because capital itself, with its ever-ceasing needs for more accumulation and more more uh, profit to be extracted from the worker, needs to keep pressurizing the working class constantly. And that's something that the, the left just doesn't get. They see class war as these set-piece things where something big and dramatic happens, whereas class struggle and class warfare is almost constant in the life of the worker and never stops. So therefore, the the lockdown is just part of that. The the closure of schools is part of that. It's an attack on the social goods that are available to the working class. And because these people like idiots like Jacobin and are selling that ridiculous board game, they see the working class as something to be pushed onto the stage when it's required by them and then withdrawn again strategically when they've got what they want. They don't see um this in terms of it's a struggle that the working class is waging not for principally for a better life for them their communities and their families but also the wider role of the working class as marx saw it which is there will be that as the the next ruling class to be raised into the position to raise themselves into the position of running society in a truly democratic fashion the views of the people like Jacobin, the people who run the Tribune group here, the people who unfortunately surrounded Jeremy Corbyn, what they want is just a return to the sort of technocratic Keynesian managerialism of the period before 1965, not understanding that that was only possible because of the existence of the Soviet Union, um, a very powerful working class, a weakened capitalism coming out of World War II, and of course, in our case, the hyper-exploitation of British colonies. All of that is no longer possible. And so all they've got left is these dreams and these aesthetics. And when you get to the point where <coughs> uh, they are now terrified of the chuds coming to get them, 
is because they have no understanding of the way actual picture of class struggle in the United States. They just see it through heavily mediated images through social media or on television. They have no idea what fascism really is. And I'll just conclude on this one, Max. It's like the, the, the ruling classes of the, the advanced nations, for them, fascism is a big risk. Hitler, Mussolini, Franco, people like that, they were turned to because the power of the working class meant that the ruling class could, could no longer continue ruling in the old way. There, and also, due to the deep crisis of capitalism in a place like Germany in the 30s, they'd also lost the middle class from um, supporting the, the old Weimar regime. They needed a figure like a Hitler to come in because he gathered the support of the ruined middle German middle class to bring them back into the system to re-legitimate it and then use that movement to smash the organized German working class. That's how fascism operates. That's how the capitalist class uses fascists. Trump doesn't meet any of those qualifications because if you're actually at the stage where the US ruling class was considering unleashing a fascist type leader, perversely, you'd actually be in a situation where the working class had already had multiple attempts at, or multiple opportunities to take power because it is only after that that the ruling class will turn and take a chance on a fascist movement. It's only at the last possible desperate moment that they will do that because fascist movements are generally unreliable in many cases and slightly run, have a tendency to run out of control. So again, the left in Britain and the United States does not understand the role historically played by fascism, nor why the bourgeoisie would turn to it, nor do they really understand the difference between the different types of capitalist regimes that do exist and the fact that what we're going into is this increasingly bureaucratized state capitalist system. Um, but they don't analyze that properly. So they just leap from hyper-emotive point to hyper-emotive point and end up, of course, because they have no mass movement, they have no base in the working class, they end up hiding behind the left flank of the bourgeoisie. Right. And, and, and you know, they, they, they don't necessarily see class war as a set piece. They see it in terms of elections, uh, because many of them are political professionals, if not people who come from the managerial sector uh, and then play that role within the left as kind of administrators. But th hmm. that, that's, where, that's where Bernie Sanders came in. That's where the squad comes yeah. in. Uh, they see class struggle as either electoral or rhetorical because apart from being involved in politics, uh, in horse race politics, they um, are YouTube influencers. Hmm. They have their, their YouTube show and that's pretty much all you can do in the US if you can't get elected as someone who describes yourself as a socialist, whether you are or not. So it just becomes uh, hyper emotive, very, uh, and, and dictated by media that not that these characters don't even control because they don't control the media no. that dictates the elections or the main organs of opinion making. Um, so it, then it all becomes kind of a game. Uh, that's how it feels to me that socialism in the u.s as it's defined by the organized left is a board game
class war game where you play as either capitalists or workers contending for dominance in the workplace and government. Capitalists improve their businesses and hire lackeys. Workers organize and try to raise their wages. Saboteur. Each side plays cards and rolls dice to gain an advantage and win a greater slice of the economic pie. Victory comes when you lose your economic and political power to match your demands into law. Will the capitalists crush the rising wave of popular discontent and entrench their positions as masters of society? Or will the workers triumph over the forces of capital and make society more equal and just? We're really excited for you guys to play Class War. Right now, we only have this prototype. In order to get it out to more people, we're going to need some additional funds. We got to get so this out today, there. We're asking you to support the project. By donating just a few bucks on Kickstarter, you'll be able to follow along with the game's progress. For a few more bucks, you'll be able to get your hands on the game before all those schmucks down at Target. And for a little bit more, you'll be able to help out all of Jacobin's future endeavors. So please consider oh. donating today. Thank you. Jesus. That guy looked like a young, that guy looked like a young Keir Starmer as well. That was terrifying. Um, Well, with, with like a kind of outre haircut like i don't <laughs> I, I i maybe maybe i'm not like qualified to mock people's appearances but why is it with all of these characters or with uh that this this academic that you guys shredded uh early like maybe last month benjamin bratton oh that guy who sort of presents everything in this pretentious postmodern language but is really <laughs> providing the script for the technocracy uh the way that they present themselves would be so instantly and reflexively mocked by anyone who yeah. is working class that it's almost like they're asking for it. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't, and I, I don't understand how like you're supposed to do your hair now to be like part of that Brooklyn set, but it's just like, everyone has this random thing where like one part of the hair comes out in one direction well, and yeah, I don't, I'm not I don't qualified know. to talk about that either, Max. Really? Yeah, uh, I mean, I can't do it anymore because I'm like, <laughs> I'm not only, I'm not, I'm, I'm a, I should be a client of the hair club for men. Um, many people might think the gray zone is a hair club for men, but it's not. But, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I mean, that just illustrates it perfectly. And I think you know what's shocking here is, um, let me get this on screen again because I don't know if everyone noticed it. And it's just so easy to mock. I don't know why you would do that. Like well, I try to avoid doing things that are cringeworthy. Maybe I I fail, but I mean, this is just like, you're just walking right into it. Well, but I it, think it's such They a raised $100,000 for this game. They're like, <laughs> we got to get this out there because this is going to bring about the class revolution and the yeah, dictatorship was, uh, of the proletariat. I mean, they raised tons of money for this. How, how much of that was from, um, you know, their, their socialist friends in the Democratic Congressional Caucus? Good question. I mean, or congressional staffers who like, yeah. I mean, when I went to the, uh, the, the, the protest against, you know, the, this, the coming evictions that AOC and her crew organized, and I was just there kind of to observe, I wanted to see what kind of tactics they were going to pull. And it mm. all, it, it was about if they exceeded my cynicism by a lot. I mean, they managed to make me more cynical than I ever thought I could be. I was like, okay, we need to at least try to do something to keep these people in their homes. And But the point I was going to make was the only people who showed up besides media 
were congressional staffers. Mm. Um, and then AOC brought in like a bus of working parties, people, working families, people from New York who immediately left after a few hours. Then like um, Schumer, Chuck Schumer shows up and the mainstream Democrats and Adam Schitt, Adam Schiff shows up. And then the CDC <laughs> issues some temporary warrant restriction on evictions mm. based on the, so the pandemic, which was, it was amazing to see the bureaucracy snap into action. It was all very choreographed, but the point is that they don't, they did it. They didn't turn out to have a grassroots base. No, no, it's the, the it's all synthetic. It's all very much a, um, a they seem to be a completely media driven creation. Um, and, and you could, yeah, you could tell that this was going to be the case with like an AOC when literally like how many like dangerous socialist radicals get an immediate invite to a softball interview on Stephen Colbert's like exorable show, which is what she got. Um, and this they were obviously being groomed to play a role within the Democratic Party to re-legitimize it for some elements of the disgruntled middle class. And that's exactly what they've done. And the fact that everything is choreographed, everything just exists online. They have no base in the working class whatsoever, it would seem. And they, their equivalents over here are just as pathetic. Like we've got the Labour left now running around screaming that we still need to pursue a zero COVID strategy, despite the fact that I'm pretty sure that none of them know what that means. And like yeah. these are the men to be like the, the holders of the Corbynist flame. Um, and of course, none of them are even saying that much anymore about the fact that the, the former leader um, himself is, of course, still expelled from the Parliamentary Labour Party. Um, they're, still, they're running around like doing all this uh, virtue signaling about Tory corruption, stuff like that. Well, oh, yes. Good old Branko Markatich. Yeah. You know, I mean, I really this is that, this is Jacobin. If you oppose the vaccine mandates, you are Nazi. Yeah, you are literally Hitler. Um, and they, and, no, as, and as you said about the labor left in the UK, Jacobin also published an article endorsing and calling for state quarantine camps to support a zero COVID elimination policy. Yeah. It's, the world should adopt the Australian model. Well, the, Austra Australian, the Australian model run by this, uh, this bankrupt fraud uh, down in Canberra, Scott Morrison, and the various sort of equally crazy uh provincial prime ministers that prime ministers that they've got over there um the fact that they think that this is a good idea again shows like the labor left has absolutely no idea they are they get the only constituency they have they have something of a link with the trade union bureaucracy in this country because that's where they get a lot of their sponsorship from is where a lot of their campaigns are funded from but again like that the trade union bureaucracy itself is this isolated bubble the Again, it exists to try and get a seat at the table with the government and the employers. That's it. There's no ambition beyond that. And since like the crushing of the most militant unions in the 80s, the only thing that it does is begs successive governments to, can you please restore tripartite bargaining? Can you please ask the employers to come to the table? Can't you be reasonable? We could be very reasonable. I mean, I'll get just one anecdote about it. Like I was part of like the biggest public sector strike um, 10 years ago. It was over the uh, Cameron's retrenchment of the pension plans in the public sector. And that was a moment where you could start to see a lot of working class people actually move into action for the first time, start to feel a little bit of power, even on the smallest level. 
And that was immediately shut down by these trade union leaders, a lot of whom liked to pose as like Len McCluskey used to do, pose as being these big left figures, you know, I'm a big working class socialist. I was on the docks for a day once, that kind of thing. And of course, as soon as like any hint of working class activity actually happened, shut down immediately. And like the Labour left, no, not a, not a peep out of them. And when they actually got the chance to implement anything, all the, the ruling class applied the slightest bit of pressure to them and they crumbled like a meringue. And now for them to run around screaming that, you know, recalcitrant working class people need to be tossed in, you know, vaccine camps or something. Um, it, it would be obscene if it wasn't so absurd. And like this is all that the likes of the DSA exist to do now. They just exist to run interference for the Democratic Party and funnel people back into it again. And that's why whatever happens in terms of actual working class politics in this country or in, I think in, in yours as well, it cannot be allowed to be dominated by people whose only option, whose only uh, answer is to funnel people back towards the Labour Party or the Democrats or wider for, you know, to try and funnel people back towards any of the capitalist parties because it's all a dead end. It's only ever the death of any movement going into that, you know, either of those parties is it's, it's a complete death. The people who are proposing it, they're either too stupid to know it or consciously are aware that it will be good for them and their career prospects. Yeah, I think the DSA has played another role, which is also to, to make ordinary people hate socialism. I've done that very well. I mean, the, the U.S. ruling class got a real bargain. Yeah, it's, you know, the double whammy. Um, I want to cover two more issues uh, before we go and you know it could it could take two hours i don't know the way the way this is going and <laughs> we're with alexander mckay of red star radio this has been a uh, fascinating conversation i mean i knew it would be and i wanted to ask you well let me just relate what a friend told me someone who's sort of become red pilled on the whole issue of covid who comes out of the traditional left but really sees things for what they are right now and told me that, uh, you know, they were going to a New Jersey Nets, not a New Jersey Nets, uh, Brooklyn Nets game and at the Atlantic center. And they saw the protest for Kyrie Irving, who is one of the most high profile NBA players who thought they could transcend the vaccine mandates or, or push for the, the, the push for everyone to get vaccinated in the league because of his star status. And then found that because of the, vaccine passport system in New York and San Francisco. He couldn't play in the two biggest, two of the biggest media markets. So his team benched him for the season. And there, mm. you know, there's this ritual stoning of him by the media. They've turned to Aaron Rodgers because he's a even larger target. And it's easier to paint him as right wing, even though he's not right wing. He's married to Shailene Woodley, who's kind of a alternative figure. But uh, I'm going too much into detail. Basically the protest consisted of a lot of the workers and restaurant and, and, and healthcare workers in Staten Island who've been organizing against the mandates, some MAGA people, you know, pro-Trump people, people who wave uh, thin blue line flags and Black Lives Matter local chapters all together. Mm -hmm. And it was a very angry protest. They pushed close to the doors of the Atlantic Center. My, I said to my friend, why didn't you join them? You know, you know what time it is. And he said, because it looked like a fascist mob. Um, and you know, you do see like the protests in New York, 
they may take a different take on a different character than those in the UK. I haven't been to the UK or those in France or Italy. They seem very heterogeneous. Hmm. In New York, uh, you know, these are angry, fired up frontline workers, including many cops, hmm. firefighters, EMS workers. Uh, it's a macho type protest. And uh, it turns off, I think, a lot of lefties. Hmm. Um, I don't know what you're seeing in the UK, but you know what? What is the is there a value in these protests? And and it's becoming a global movement or protests hmm. against mandates in Indonesia, Iran, Morocco yeah. is having ferocious protests against the passport system there. Hmm. I mean, is there a value in getting involved in these? And you know, do do people who are identified as leftists, Marxists, socialists run the risk of being accused of being in a red brown alliance? And should they just not care anymore uh, they to uh, to answer uh, your last question first yeah, we shouldn't care anymore what the the screeching hysterics in like the institutional left say i've been accusing yeah, i've been accused of being a racist a uh, an assadist a um um and back in the day a supporter of saddam hussein um and you what you learn is that you can't not only can you not let yeah, these people define you, you can't let them dictate your actions, nor do these people have any right to say how the working class moves into struggle. Now, I've seen some people in the British and the US left going, oh, now they move into struggle. Now they move into struggle over vaccines. And it's like, well, how do you think this was going to start? You don't get to choose. If you're not in the working class, if you're not part of the working class then you don't get to dictate how that working class struggles. That's a really basic point that should be rather clear by now. Um, but absolutely, we should be supporting it because, like as Richard Wolff said, like um, the giving the cap, giving the capitalists, giving the the employers and the government direct command over what substances uh, get injected into you is pretty much as fundamental a violation of rights as you would imagine. And I think back to those Australian construction workers who were demonstrating uh, vociferously against um, the uh, Dan Andrews, this provincial uh, petty tyrant in Australia, uh, one of the provincial prime ministers. And uh, what one of those guys said in an interview was like the, the vaccine mandate had caused a lot of the casually employed men to be dismissed. And they were angry at the union, they were angry at the Australian Labour Party, or they were angry at the political establishment in general. And one of, one of the guys who was interviewed said, said was that, well, this is one more thing on top of so many other things. Like there was, um, the, it turns out in the building trade in Australia, they've been like losing the rights to permanent contracts for years and years and years uselessly and capitulating on everything uh most men those the construction workers would there seem to be on like temporary agency employment and then there's this on top of that which causes them to even lose that no wonder they moved into action it's the same with italy which is run by this sort of um lab-grown technocrat mario draghi um who's been looking for ways to attack the italian working class for many many years now he's had multiple stabs at this now he he's a central he, banker i mean he was a former yeah, head of he was ecb guy yeah and he um is using the the green pass in italy as a, as a means of directly attacking the working class of breaking up working class organization 
and Macron, same thing in France. He's his mandate from the French ruling class is to break the resistance of the French working class. Now he got into trouble when he tried to put on that ridiculous green tax a few years ago, and the yellow vest movement emerged. And he's thankfully he's running into trouble over this as well. And here as well, like so, people, working class people, will move into struggle over all manner of things because what it what reaches is a breaking point. And being told that if you're a health worker in a national health service in this country and you've been working for a year, surrounded sometimes by people with the coronavirus in their system, you maybe you've had it yourself, you've certainly picked up the antibodies, and then to be told after a year that you have this experimental leaky vaccine which doesn't prevent transmission and doesn't prevent infection, otherwise you're sacked. Well, no wonder people, health workers in that situation, would turn around and say, well, fuck you. I'm not going to do it because that's the breaking point. And what a lot of people on the left don't understand is unless you're in a part of that group of workers, you don't understand when their breaking point is going to be. And again, nor do we get to dictate how they struggle or when they start to struggle. If you're engaged, engaged in journalistic or intellectual work and you see yourself as having a role in supporting workers in struggle your role is to go and lend support to that and if you feel uncomfortable next to you know some section of the the working class well that's your issue not theirs and if you aspire to actually um build a genuinely better society then you're going to get over your hang-ups if you want to be part of a movement and that's something which everybody on the left will need to learn certainly something i had to learn uh 20 years ago when i first started getting active and it'll be good for people to go through that process and i can't i can believe that it's a that, that this is the case but if you suddenly see like firefighters uh ambulance service workers health workers construction workers all over the world all moving into action your response is they're doing it over the wrong thing then it is you that's wrong not the workers Uh, Max, you're muted. So, sorry, Try, I, I heard. I was trying to avoid an echo, or or it's you who is actually opposed to their livelihood and their agenda, hmm. and that's where I see a large part of the left um, on on this issue. Um, I don't think this is the last crisis that we're going to face this year, hmm. and I could actually see after COP twenty six, and this is kind of the last issue I want to cover. Hmm. And, and and just kind of watching it in cursory fashion, I wasn't closely observing it just because I didn't have time to, but I got the point of what it was about. I wrote a 9,000 word review of this film, Planet of the Humans, last year, hmm. uh, which I think really nails the agenda of the kind of, of green capitalism really got it right and they, therefore came under attack by the renewables industry and Naomi Klein, who is like effectively their lobbyist. And what they want to do is access this multi-trillion dollar profit center mm. of you know minerals and renewables, creating electric batteries. Most power will be sourced to electric batteries by 2040, according to the World Economic Forum. It, it and Renewables can also be used to, if they work, I mean, it's not clear that they actually 
work on a population mm -hmm. level, kind of like the COVID vaccines. Um, it's a, you know, a great device, at least NATO and people around it fantasize about weakening Putin's power and economic cooperation with Europe. You know, mm -hmm. it would make, it would ob like obliterate the need for the Nord Stream pipeline. So there are all these agendas mixed up in it. Um, but it became kind of clear to me that with COP26, this is the next sort of crisis that we're going to move into as a global focus. And the pandemic can be taken into a denouement mm -hmm. when we move into this new crisis. And the new crisis will allow the central banks to pump tons of money into the financial sector to fund the so-called green economy. Um, I guess before I get your take on COP26 and the whole issue of climate change, I wanted to just play some disgusting video from COP26 just <laughs> for the hell of it. This is little oh, Amal. Gosh. The giant Jeez. puppet has traveled 8,000 kilometers in support of refugees. <laughs> and this is her at COP26. Now that's just creepy. I mean, this is disturbing on so many levels. I mean, are, are they trying to confirm all the uh, the rumors that the um, this is all part of some satanic ritual? Yeah, th this between this and Astro World, I'm starting to believe Satan is here. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, the only thing they need now is Travis Scott presiding over like a yeah. child sacrifice with some right. creep, does, creepy does he, synth. Does he jump out of the puppet? Is that the conclusion <laughs> to this? He'll be like, hey, hey. <laughs> okay so yeah the puppet has a white guy inside of it you see here. <laughs> there's, oh, God. there's a white guy with a man bun inside this brown woman and his head is where her heart is i mean there should really be like a wicker man scene now yeah if um, if this concluded with us getting to burn somebody then maybe it would maybe be worth it but i found this max to be that just incredibly obscene yes uh, just like talafalava my name is brianna fruin and it is my absolute pleasure to stand by and stand with little amal today before we share with you all today would like to share something with each other i brought amal a say which is a flower like the one i have in my ear to represent hope and light and it is my pleasure to gift it to her. To gift it to the sweaty white guy in her heart. <laughs> <sighs> Do you know Amal is not real and that the real Amal is a victim of your dirty war on Syria? You fucking oh idiot. God. Okay, so I, you were saying. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's just so obscene. Like when you uh, consider, as you were saying, Max, the... The fact that, you know, well, I wonder why there were all these Syrian refugees. I wonder what possible event could have caused it. Could it be the uh, um, the the actions of Britain, where the COP26 was taking place, and the United States and France and others in destroying Syria, um, using a hired gang of jihadists to do it? Maybe. Not that that's ever going to get a mention. Um, so, I mean, the fact that they, like, use, like, this as some sort of, like, political prop for themselves is like it's no more it's as morally degenerate as the 
the old um, human zoos they used to install in European cities back in the high colonial period, um, plus extra creepy. Um, but, I mean, I was dipping in and out of the COP26 uh, clusterfuck. And, I mean, aside from the fact that, you know, it's Boris Johnson's chance to sort of prance around on the main stage, on the world stage, Biden falling asleep, uh, Xi not even being there, um, a series of other like desperate sort of gesture politics things going on. What occurred to me is like, yeah, they are, there's clearly a group of investors um, in the United States and Britain who've decided that green tech is the big thing. It's the thing that they're going to throw money into. It's the thing that also will turn on state financing for them. Uh, so if you go to the Treasury now and say, oh, I've got this Rishi, who Rishi Sunak, our Chancellor, our Finance Minister, and say, Rishi, I've got a great idea. Uh, we're going to invest in building uh, carbon neutral windmills in Suffolk, for instance, a county in England. And all I need from you is 20 billion pounds of startup capital. And it's a great way of accessing that. And of course, what it'll be is what it always turns into. I mean, we've had successive waves of this attempts at green capitalism. Gordon Brown tried this when he ran into trouble in the latter part of his, uh, his premiership. They go back to this as some sort of, you know, it's the greenwash method to try and make it look as if they're doing something. Added to um, this is the idea that, um, again, they're looking for a way to revive uh, British capitalism and American capitalism. Some of them think that investment in green technologies is the way to do that. Of course, Nobody mentions the gigantic costs of uh, you know, mining uh, the lithium for the uh, electronic cars, et cetera, or the sheer amount of extraction that'll have to be done to um, actually fulfill all this stuff. But the other thing that struck me is like how climate change is being used to justify the underdevelopment of the, um, the formerly colonized and neo-colonial world. For instance, there was this Kenyan government spokesman uh, put up on the stage the other day, presumably by his British handlers, uh, saying, oh, climate change is um, terrible for my country. It's going to mean economic devastation, etc. And you don't need to dig too far into the history of somewhere like Kenya to see why it's actually economically devastated. It's because they never shook off the control of the British empire. It just changed form. They hired local people to do it for them. And as always, um, the colonial powers underdevelop all of the places that they dominate because they want to use them as raw resource extraction or agricultural areas. And so the development even of capitalism in Kenya and all the other uh, colonized nations has been distorted because it's there to serve the interests of British capitalism. That's why those countries are backward. It's not because of climate change. And even if um, environmental problems are causing changes in the, um, in the ecology of Kenya, if Kenya was actually had been allowed to develop seriously, um, it would be able to adapt around that by having actual democratic control or having sovereign control over those resources. It's because this is a yet another way of actually imposing um, colonial rule. I mean, they're now floating the possibility of like wars of intervention to save the world, to green wars, to prevent um, these nasty dictators from destroying the environment. We've got to make sure that we've got Elizabeth Warren's carbon neutral cruise missiles ready to go and a phalanx of NGO organizations ready to go in there with the message that unless you allow 
Western intervention that your evil regime will somehow condemn you to a carbon-based early death. And this well, you're is not, you're not just being glib. Is. I mean, for anyone who's wondering, Bloomberg published a piece of citing a Council on Foreign Relations paper on how climate change will be used to whittle away at whatever's left of national sovereignty. Mm. And it concluded with a quote. Um, I don't remember who the quote was from. That uh, in the future, the next military intervention will be waged to stop ecocide. And this term <laughs> ecocide was constantly invoked. And that really refers, it, it's consistent with this narrative we hear from some sectors of the green left or the pseudo left about, uh, you know, mid-sized economies in the global south or developing countries in the global south, like Bolivia, for example. Um, extractivism is constantly used to delegitimize figures like Evo Morales or uh, Nicolas Maduro, for example, because the mm -hmm. economy is run along, a, a, as Naomi Klein put it, petro-populist lines. And so the left kind of creates space for this military interventionist or neo-colonial agenda by mm. using this terminology. And it actually, I mean, we, we reported at the Gray Zone, we ran a piece by Wyatt Reed on how various NGO operatives from U.S. and U.S. intelligence-backed NGOs launched a campaign in the summer of 2019 in Bolivia to accuse Evo Morales of ecocide. And they ran various protests in front of the Bolivian embassy in the U.S. and U.K., Extinction Rebellion, um, mm. who's always out there winning hearts and minds by preventing people from getting to work by blocking <laughs> highways. Yeah. Uh, they were part of this. The first stage of what became a fascistic right-wing coup that drove Evo Morales, the first indigenous president uh, in, in South American history, out of the country, fleeing for his life. So we can, we've already seen this take place. Mm. And so I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, and the it's not even that hard to join the dots together so it's kind of inexcusable that, that many people don't um you know it just look again let's look at the history 150 years ago they were going into these uh, these countries in sub-saharan africa and across southeast asia to save the poor savages from themselves then later on they were doing uh, when they were forced out of direct military occupation they were had to they had to go in with governance programs to just make sure they did capitalism right and by that they mean sign over all the resources and do what they and do what the banks tell you and now it's going to be oh well they can't run they 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 eco-siding themselves we've got to go in there and run it for them it's all the same messaging it's all the same propaganda over and over and over again and like uh, just like uh, old Ramsay MacDonald, the old leader of the Labour Party, will have people on the left in Britain saying, oh, well, we've got to go into, you know, Nigeria or where or wherever. We've got to go into, we've got to make sure we coup out the latest president of Bolivia or, or get rid of um, uh, the Bolivarian um, government in Venezuela because uh, we can't have them engaging in, as you said, Naomi Klein put it, uh, eco-pop, um, sorry, petro-populism. And like, they again and again like this is just another case of like uh, the leftists being utilized as like foot soldiers for imperialism but more broadly i think it represents the same problem we've been discussing throughout this max which is that capitalism in uh, many countries is in a deep crisis they're looking for ways to revive it as i said 
direct and uh, punitive attacks on the living standards of the working class will probably they will attempt that they will also attempt new and brutish forms of colonialism using new propaganda methods to do so and also they will try and sort of uh, technologize the way out of it but they're only going to be able to get that by stealing the uh, the, res the raw resources from other countries and they've got a fundamental problem which is that they are running into a dead end and unless uh, they find a way, a profitable way out of this, their system's going to keep on stagnating. And also, I would say that a lot of the green rhetoric um, around, like, the idea that, um, oh, well, you know, we've got to, we've got to, uh, the industrialization's a problem, that we've got to, like, um, you know, make up for our sins of industrializing in the first place by depriving the, uh, the, the, um, the benefits of it to anybody else. Um, a lot of this comes from the fact that the, the left has bought into what I would call a degree of bourgeois Malthusianism. Um, they buy into the idea that, de that economic development is bad, that human beings are awful, that we need to somehow uh, purge the world of ourselves somehow. And a lot of them too do take this seriously. And of course, that completely lends itself to the view of the ruling class, because the ruling class's view is that they're desperately looking for a way out. They kind of know their best days are behind them and that filters through to sections of the left who don't see the potential for new developments they don't see the potential for a better society they only see the potential of retrenching eternally the current society and that's why they have lent them they've gone completely over to malthusianism um, over uh, the bankrupt theory of overconsumption um, the idea that they have to stop the developing world from developing any further. I mean, that is the mess that was on display with these demonstrations outside COP26, where you get the ludicrous sight of like the people who were inside the conference demonstrating outside of it. I mean, that is like, like postmodern philosophers couldn't come up with a better illustration of like the modern era than that. I mean, I'm just surprised that Prince Charles himself didn't turn up on his Aston in his Aston Martin, fueled by gone-off white wine. Cool, and and that's Greta Thunberg's role. Mm. I mean, you'll see her at the Rockefeller Foundation headlining a panel, and then they try to bring in these um, multicultural Greta Thunbergs who aren't quite as charismatic as her, just to kind of give her some international cover. But her mm. role is to play the inside and the outside off each other. Um, as kind of a negotiating chip, yeah. uh, it's it's unclear, you know, who who she's actually working for. But either way, the result is going to be the same. I can't really resist sharing this article from Mining.com, which really hit, hits the nail on the head. Mining's unlikely heroines, Greta Thunberg and AOC. Exponential expansion of global mining is the dirty little secret and glaring blind spot of Green New Deal evangelists and zero carbon climate warriors. <laughs> I mean, this is the main trade journal of the mining industry. This article is written by um, Frick Else, who is a mining lobbyist, and mm -hmm. he's just spitting the truth. Uh, there will have to be the mining of um, deep sea. There will be deep sea mining required in order to obtain the minerals necessary to power the uh, electric battery and digital revolution that's called for in the Green New Deal as spelled out by AOC and articulated by Greta Thunberg. 
mm. along with massive uh, lithium mining in yeah. South America, cobalt mining in Congo, which has already helped fuel a genocide. I mean, I, I don't, I don't see how this is environmentally feasible, and it really raises a question for me, or, or, or makes me kind of zero in on the language that's used by what doesn't even call itself an environmental movement anymore today. They call it a climate, they call themselves a climate justice movement, is they, they focus exclusively in their rhetoric on carbon emissions, on carbon and climate, but they don't talk about the earth, because the yes. earth has to be sacrificed for the climate. <laughs> Yeah, um, it reminds me of the old uh, doctor from the medieval period who declares that um, they've purged the evil from the body, but the patients unfortunately expired. Um, it's, it's essentially it's the same thing. We've uh, we've uh, we've applied the leeches, we've bled the patient, um, and we can declare him to be pure. Um, the the I mean, as as Elon Musk said, we'll coup anybody we like uh, when it came to <laughs> Bolivia. And um, essentially, you'll have AOC and various others doing the same thing, putting a new, a new, a new logo on uh, various different resource coups. I mean, it, uh, again, unless unless there is a breakthrough in terms of the the working class in the major nations overturning the regimes, um, we are just going to keep continuing down this path. And as we were been discussing, Max, the the, the, the regime for most people, for the working class and increasingly the middle class as well, has nothing to offer. There is no better capitalism available now. It's this end, um, end well, I'm going to say end point, but declining, uh, the, the declining capitalism, which only offers restrictive, restrictive wages, a restrictive uh, personal life with various different uh, um, authoritarian measures being put in place over the last 30 years. And now, of course, there'll be, um, the, the, there is propaganda out there saying that, oh, well, it's, it's your consumption, which is the problem. You know, we're going to try and, I mean, it's been a long been a dream of like uh, crazy reactionaries in the, in the upper echelons of the bourgeoisie that uh, the working class eat too much, the working class breed too much, that we've got to control their diet, we've got to put them on this, that or the other. That's always been something that they've been obsessed with. And now they feel like they've got the opportunity to pursue it again under the guise of climate justice, this great nebulous term under which you can justify almost anything. So it's a great, it's a great piece of advertising for a capitalism in decay. Much like all their other dreams, though, I think it's going to come up short. I think the, the mining lobbyists are probably literally more on the money than they are, and that all of this is going to turn into is more coups, more interventions, more resource extraction, and, of course, more gigantic amounts of state resources put towards fraudulent green tech initiatives run by pseudo and sub-Silicon Valley scumbags who yep. take the money and run. Because that's yep. the nature of British capitalism. Like the state hands out money, absolute opportunists just take it um, and do an initial stock offering, cash out and fuck off. And that's what the uh, the great green revolution is going to turn into. Just another cash out opportunity and just another uh, great opportunity for the ruling class to get some free money. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, this has been a marathon. I think we could probably... <laughs> Go for another two and a half hours, but you have an enormous amount of intellectual stamina, and I don't, I'm losing my voice. But and I haven't <laughs> even done as much talking. I mean, 
I guess I, I did want to ask one more question. You can answer really briefly, um, and then we'll get out of here. Do you think Karl Marx, you've read more of his work than I have. Do you think he would hate today's left? Oh, absolutely. Um, he hated most of the left on his, in his own time. Uh, if you ever read um, his exoriations of people like uh, the French pseudo-anarchist Pierre-Joseph Proudhon or Bakunin, uh, Mikhail Bakunin, Russian aristocrat and supporter of the Confederacy, famously, um, he, he thought they were a bunch of uh, backward-looking fools and were like, ludicrously middle-class adventurers. Um, he'd probably laugh heartily at today's left because they've proved many of his theses correct, which is that these adventurers in the middle class who have no basis in the working class, with who have all these utopian ideas, where do they always end up? Back supporting the bourgeoisie again. When, all, when it all goes wrong, all of their, what I would call reactionary utopian fantasies, as Prudhans and Bakunins were, go wrong. They just end up back at the, uh, uh, waving the flag for their chosen part of the ruling class again. So I think he wouldn't be surprised, uh, but he would be both enraged and amused. It, it would be uh, instructive if he could <laughs> return for a day. And yeah, this is what I saw take place this year, that process that you just described. Mm. Um, but I, I would say your podcast with Layla has been a sanctuary, uh, you know, turning it on and getting a dose of sanity is rare these <laughs> days. Um, where can everyone who's watching this find your work well just go over to you can find red star radio on um, any of the major podcast platforms you can just subscribe on there um, or you can find me on twitter at armckay 82 uh, or you can find uh, layla on there uh, as well <clears throat> and you can uh, find the podcast account which is just at red star radio so dive in we've got an extensive covid archive on there for you to listen to if anybody wants to go through that and we're actually reviewing um, Mr. Klaus Schwab's book next month for the uh, for our reading group as well. So that's something to look forward to. Yeah, I, I my own review is that uh, it's it's more boring than you expect, and he, <laughs> <laughs> he, you think it's going to be like reading Doctor Evil's manual, but the frightening thing is that he's so well-meaning in his own mind. Um, well, but, you, you, you'd think that Bond villains would be more interesting. Yeah, exactly. Well, Alexander McKay, thanks so much for, for joining me. This was a great conversation and uh, we'll do it again in the, in the near future. Thanks very much, Max. All right, take care.